Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions. But, you know, as I've said before, there is no such thing as a wrong opinion. Opinions are like noses. Everybody's got one. The exchange of views, fair debate, no cancelling, no interrupting, no aggressive responses. We want to hear what people have to say. Whatever side you're on. And the listener, the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Good morning, everyone. It's so wonderful to have you back. It's so wonderful to be back. Oh, I have missed you so much. It's Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. So pleased to be here with you and we've got a great show coming up because you know we've had the normal media circus but we're going to have a bit of a deeper insight into what is going on with the treaty the principles race relations our past our present our future and we're talking to none other than the honorable dr michael bassett historian politician tribunal member of the Waitangi Tribunal, and he's going to give his thoughts, stretching all the way back to when he was first an MP with Norman Kirk. I'm going to ask him about Norman Kirk. And discussing where we have arrived and where we're heading with Waitangi Day. Also, we've got coming up author Ewan McQueen. We've had him on before. Great guest. And we're going to be talking principles of the treaty. What are they? Where'd they come from? What's going on? Is David Seymour's bill the right way to go? Again, thank you for being with us. It's going to be a great year. 2024 is going to be amazing. And I feel so fortunate, so blessed, so lucky to be sharing it with you. And I have to say I've had some wonderful notes from you. And I feel part of a very large and very wonderful community. Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Rally Check Radio. Thank you for listening. Oh, good morning, everyone. We're in for a treat this morning. I'm sure everyone is sick of the news from uh, 
Waitangi. But it's uh, a time for reflection, but with some serious consideration from people who know what we're talking about. And no one, no one is better placed to discuss the treaty, its modern reincarnation, if you like, and what we're witnessing than the Honourable Dr. Michael Bassett, who was a Member of Parliament, who was a minister, is a distinguished historian, and who was around when the reincarnation or when the treaty was reinvented. He has seen it all. Good morning, Michael. Morning, Rodney. It's so lovely to have you here this morning to discuss this weighty topic because the news is leaving us a bit bereft of understanding, is it not? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've had a weekend uh, or several days of uh, discourteous, grossly discourteous behaviour. Uh, politicians expected to turn themselves into Aunt Sally's and, uh, uh, you know, we have stones thrown at them up at uh, Waitangi. Um, I'm talking in uh, uh, not in literal terms. And, um, uh, you know, we need to think back on what Waitangi Day was meant to be. Can I take, can I interrupt you there? Because listeners possibly don't know this. But you were a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed young MP <laughs> way back when Norman Kirk became Prime Minister. That's right. I was elected in 1972. Oh, my goodness, Michael. And so you were there, and Norman Kirk famously went to Waitangi, that iconic image of walking onto the Marae with that young boy holding his hand, captured the nation. It's still a powerful picture. I don't even know what, I wonder who, the, I've often wondered who that little boy was. I can never discover it. He made February the 6th, New Zealand Day, and I think a public holiday at the same time. Your view back then you could not have imagined where we have arrived. We've arrived at exactly what Norman Kirk didn't want to happen. Uh, and the uh, initial legislation was for New Zealand Day. And that began in 1974 with the first public holiday. Kirk uh, said that uh, the Waitangi Treaty was for everybody. It was to reflect the interests of all New Zealanders, no matter their racial background or their cultural background. And that was celebrated uh, in front of the Queen on the uh, apron at in front of the Treaty House uh, on 6 February 1974, where there was a multicultural 
series of events. Uh, I remember the Yugoslav community because I represented a Western uh, Auckland uh, area. And I remember um, Dutch and all the others, as well as Māori. I mean, Māori were pretty central to the whole thing, but by no means was it unique. Well, it was Muldoon who decided that uh, in 1976, he would revert to Waitangi Day uh, and drop the uh, the multicultural aspect of uh, our national day. And, of course, what happened was that it became Grizzlers Day. And so the Grizzlers stepped up in the late uh, 70s and they became really quite belligerent in the early uh, 1980s. Some might remember Sir David Beatty, one of our better best, uh, one of our best uh, uh, governors general, being insulted on the Marae uh, in I think it was 1982-3. And um, anyway, the incoming Longy government in 1984 and early 1985, decided we weren't going to be Aunt Sally's anymore. And so nobody, uh, the Prime Minister and um, ministers, didn't go to Waitangi. Uh, Instead, uh, Waitangi celebrations uh, were held in various parts of the country. Geoffrey Palmer went out to O'Kane's Bay out of Christchurch. Stan Roger went somewhere in Dunedin. Um, and the rest of us, um, by and large, uh, were in the beehive in the um, dining room, the great big uh, room that you'll remember. And um, Mari came and uh, we had uh, some talks and speeches and so on. And we just didn't go to Waitangi to have things, have abuse hurled at us. Well, slowly we phased back into uh, going to Waitangi, but only some. I was Minister of Internal Affairs in 1988, 89, 90. And uh, because 1990 was uh, the 150th anniversary of the signing of the treaty, and I was chairman of the uh, 1990 commission, uh, we organised for uh, the arrival of the Queen again uh, at Waitangi in 1990. Well, it was a rather different show to uh, the events that she had uh, enjoyed in 1974. In 1990, I watched uh, uh, one of the crazy Harawira women throw a wet T-shirt at the Queen as she was departing the um, uh, treaty grounds, and it was all back on again. Um, uh, the politicians, um, Aunt Sally's, once more. Well, there have been various acts of rebellion by the uh, ministers since then, Hel- and other politicians. Helen Clark, you'll remember, was abused. I think it was 1998, uh, 99, refused speaking rights before she became prime minister and um, and so on. So it's been an upside, upside down uh, kind of an affair, the Waitangi uh, celebrations, if that's what they are. Uh, and uh, frankly, I think it's about time for the politicians to say, look, enough of this Aunt Sally nonsense. Uh, we'll take a breather for a while. You sort out your rubbish, 
to use Winston Peters' um, uh, wonderful line the other day, cut the crap and get educated. <laughs> and once, once they've done that, uh, we'll then, come back. then we'll come back. Tell me, you keep using that phrase and it's my ignorance. Aunt Sally, well, what's that a reference to? Oh, it's an old saying um, where where people uh, let themselves have sticks and stones and balls, mm. things thrown at them. You sit there and uh, it's a bit like a coconut shy, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just sorry. The moment you said that, I had a picture picture of Chris Luxon's head. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. That is so funny. Um, Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's a coconut shy. Oh, you must weep, Michael going back to 1974 and thinking about mm-hmm. how we had a wonderful country and we were going to make it better. Well, that was certainly Kirk's intention. And it was one of his, it was his last uh, appearance at Waitangi. The event that you referred to earlier of the picking the hand of the little Maori boy and taking him up to the stage had been the previous year, mm. 1973. 74 was the multicultural display mm. and in front of the Queen. She was over for the Commonwealth Games in Christchurch. And uh, it was a wonderful day. I'll still, I can still remember the uh, the show uh, but sad not not to be um, enjoyed. And, of course, one of the reasons why people say we can't have the 6th of February as our national day is because it's been allowed to be turned into Grizzlers Day. Hmm. Did you like Norman Kirk? Yes, I did. He, he was hard to sort of get to know uh, I remember being introduced to him and um, uh, some guy, stand, a union secretary standing next to him said, um, you better watch this guy, referring to me. He's had an education. Oh. And uh, in those days, the unions <laughs> were a bit scared of them. And, um, Rightly so, as it happened. I ended up getting on well with him and I was reading chair in Auckland uh, of the party and uh, uh, we we got along fine. Hmm. Was he a great Prime Minister? Hard to tell really because he's only there for 20 months. Is uh, that all? Oh yeah. my goodness, isn't that funny? Yeah. I thought he, you know, close to three years. He oh. died the end of August 1974. He's not, yes, he's about 21 months I think he was Prime oh, Minister. My goodness. My goodness, isn't that amazing? Um, you served on the Waitangi Tribunal. Yes. Which I neglected to mention uh, in my introduction of you. How many years? Uh, Ten. 1994 to 2004. When you went onto the tribunal, did you go onto the tribunal with high hopes or with a bit of a sigh? Well, it came out of out of um, left field, really. I was teaching in Canada, and I got a ring from John Luxton, who was Minister of Maori Affairs, and he said, look, there was a shamozzle in Cabinet this morning. Um, the, the, I proposed, I forget who it was, 
uh, and the cabinet said, oh, no, not him. And um, so uh, I said, well, if it's not him, who else? And some rascal piped up and said, well, Michael Bassett uh, 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 might uh, do the trick. Ah, ah, okay. So anyway, I went on and I initially was invited to uh, help with the writing of a lot of reports. At least that's what I was told I would be doing. And since writing is something that I do with some ease, um, I thought, okay. But when I got there to the tribunal, it became clear to me that the chairman of the day didn't want me writing reports and um, was a little bit sceptical about uh, whether I would be, um, you know, uh, a compliant um, uh, person. And um, so I had to wait for a while before a couple of cases came up. And uh, they were interesting cases. One of them was uh, involved um, kiwi fruit sellers who were... Uh, oh, that's right. Inviting well, the monopoly. Yep, that's right. Well, they... they um, the Maori kiwi fruit sellers argued that they shouldn't have to uh, be bound to the monopoly uh, that they had a treaty right. And uh, I ended up by writing the report for that one. Um, and uh, what became clear was that the only area where the Kiwi Fruit uh, uh, Marketing Authority uh, overseas didn't insist on um, a monopoly uh, right was for sales to Australia. And that was the only place where the Maori kiwi fruit uh, sellers had been selling overseas and claimed that their um, sales were impeded by the new rules. And so the case was thrown out. Uh, and my report, I think, was the first one that uh, um, was ever thrown out by the tribunal. I then went on to a couple of others, uh, the Kaipara case, the Tauranga case, and uh, oh, I heard another couple of smaller ones, um, all interesting, but um, it was not what I would call rigorous nice. study. Uh, unfortunately, the tribunal uh, makeup was of people who just were predisposed to believe that whatever Māori wanted, they could have. Mm. As a historian, too, you must struggle, and we can understand this, that there is some legitimacy in oral history in the sense that all history starts off orally, um, including Homer. But when you're a historian, you're wanting to sift and find the facts. And we now have this oral history which is almost made sacred, which for his and a historian um, must be extremely problematic, Michael. Well, yes, sometimes, although, of course, any historian worthy of his uh, crust will go and talk to people 
about things. Uh, when I did my book on the prime ministers, uh, I spoke to all of them and uh, I spoke to many people around them. Uh, I needed oral input in order mm. to get the story credible. Um, it's a mixed uh, thing, really, oral history. It, it has its place. But uh, how do you treat a claim of occupation or travel or use of a resource from hundreds of years ago? Yeah, that's where it gets tricky. Yes. That's where it really gets tricky. We've also got this interesting thing too, haven't we, where we have grafted, like it or not, into our culture a sort of spiritual and religious belief that is now given a, a predominance. So you have spirits and monsters and all the rest of it. And I struggle with this because I like to respect people's beliefs. But I sort of draw the line when they impact public policy and when they impact uh, my own going about my business. Like like you can't put the road here because there's a tanner fire at that corner. Yes. yes. Yes, it becomes a problem, doesn't it? And stretching your your belief in uh, uh, something to uh, accept that. Yes, I had the interesting experience of living for a while in the Waikato. And all these Maori carvings appeared on the bridges and highways. And maybe this is just because of the baggage that a lot of this stuff now carries, they irked me enormously because I knew they'd been done at our expense. And I thought, well, maybe I would appreciate them more if I understood their significance. I literally spent a year riding off happily to the New Zealand Transport Authority <coughs> asking about these huge and, in a way, quite impressive carvings and structures it finally transpired that I weren't to know what they were and not only that New Zealand Transport Authority didn't know what they were <clears throat> because they couldn't be what's that word that you have in a tribal society they weren't they weren't sufficiently high up the tribal hierarchy to be Privy to the privy to the witch doctor's special <laughs> knowledge, and this this at my at that time I thought we are truly lost, yeah. and this is a struggle, isn't it? We're living in a all the benefits of a Western rational system, and again, we are being caught up with this unquestioning view of how the world should go which is absolutely incompatible with a democratic way of life right and uh really in the end uh you're either one thing or the other yes and uh it, 
trying to enforce tribal mysticism uh, in today's day and age is about as difficult as trying to ram um, religious concepts down everybody else's throat. Yes. Uh, I mean, if you have a democratic society, people are free to make their choice Mm. and uh, Mm. they can have religion or they don't have religion. That's Mm. their right. Well, we we Christians are very understanding of that. And um, we don't want to enforce it. We want you to discover it. And, of course, again, that is something rooted uh, in our history. Tell me, what's your prognosis, Michael? You've been there right through the modern era. You've witnessed, oh, first up, when you were growing up, when you are at school, I actually have a memory, not of the time, bit of your history that you were at Dilworth boy? I was, yes, yes. So when you're at Dilworth, what role did the treaty play? None whatsoever. Had you I, heard of it? I think I'd heard of it. I was quite good at history. And uh and moreover I was in an avid reader of the newspaper from a very mm. small uh boy. And um I knew of the treaty, but there was no 6th of February um, special function or anything like that. It just didn't exist um, in the late 40s, early 50s. It just wasn't there. So um, it's a very, very modern thing, isn't it? You know, going back to Norman Kirk. Yes. And then this reinterpretation of it. What is your prognosis? for the day, treaty, and race relations in New Zealand? Well, I think that the, I mean, if the politicians are wise, they will pull back from being Aunt Sally's. That will, they'll be shouting and roaring and going on. And the media will whip it all up because it, uh, the last few days has been a media-inspired circus. Let's be clear yes. about that. Yes. Um, and the media circus will continue, I suppose, because they think that there are readers of their papers and listeners to their programmes um, if they go on uh, talking about uh, the wicked politicians. But I wouldn't uh, favour... Uh, the politicians remaining aren't Sally's. I mean, I think it's just silly. Give them a breather for a time. The future of Māori, which is really what's at stake here, is uh, a matter of considerable concern, it seems to me. I mean, we're in a situation where about 40% of Māori society is in a dreadful state. Um, I mean, you've only got to look at uh, truancy, uh, at uh, welfare, at um, family violence, at crime, all of those things all connected and all of them uh, making uh, many aspects of Māori society in terrible shape. But it's something that Māori themselves and particularly the tribal leaders will not front up to. I mean, you didn't hear any of those issues discussed in Whitey. No. 
And yet, they are what is holding Māori back, not David Seymour or um, the Treaty Principal Bill or um, uh, the setting up of uh, charter schools or anything like that. What is actually holding Māori back is really basically welfare and all of the things that flow on from easy welfare, just as our old Sarapurana Nata predicted uh, in the 20s and the 30s, it's come to roost. Uh, when Nata advised um, uh, Savage's government uh, not to pay unemployment benefits in cash, to work on providing jobs, but don't pay cash was the message uh, he gave. He knew a thing or two. And what we he do now is that uh, access to easy cash is the single biggest problem which confronts Māori and which enabled so many people to come out of the blue and uh, go up to Waitangi. Uh, they weren't working. So Aparana Nata, on our $50 bill, a great man when you read of Indeed. him. Where did he come from? Where did this true leader and visionary come from? That is in itself a very interesting question because uh, the biography of him, written by Rangi Walker, neglects to mention that one of his ancestors was Indian. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, one of his ancestors came from Goa in, uh, in India. And marvellous. <clears throat> yes. Well, he told, he, he didn't make any secret of that fact. Uh, anybody who wanted to know, uh, Nata told. His home in Ruatoria was called the Bungalow, which, of course, is an Indian uh, architectural thing. And um, he told Peter Tapsell, who was a colleague of mine and a later member for Eastern Māori, uh, about uh, his Goan ancestry. Uh, but... Um, and it, it's been acknowledged by uh, uh, others. Uh, he, he grew up and went to, uh, had a good education. He was obviously very bright. Went to uh, Victoria University. and Did he go uh, through Te College? Yes, I think so. I think so, yes. I think so. Uh, I'm trying to remember now. I did read and I reviewed uh, Rangi Walker's book, um, but I can't remember all the detail. Victoria University? Victoria University did an um, MA, I think, and then a law degree, and uh, he's the first Māori graduate. Uh, followed, of course, fairly quickly thereafter by Peter Buck to Rangi Haroa, and then the Maui Pomari and uh, other uh, others of the original Maori leaders of the turn of the century. And again, you shudder, don't you? You shudder to imagine. Here we are enjoying the fruits of our ancestors' sacrifice, work, vision, thinking, what they did for the future that we're enjoying and here we are sort of trampling on their gift 
absolutely. I mean, the one thing that Nata preached all the time was get an education that you, you, we are capable of beating the white man at his own game if we only apply it ourselves. He was not a victim. No, not at all. And um, uh, you look at that mob at Waitangi and ask yourself, Mm. how far have we still got to go? Mm. Where is a nata? There's been been nobody remotely in that category Mm. uh, for 60, 70, 80 years. None. I uh, like looking at the TVNZ archives of the old New Zealand Film Commission shots, and there was a great one uh, that was pictures of the Maori Battalion. It was a piece on um, Narumu, the the VC, posthumous. And you saw those Maori soldiers being filmed, first of all, as young men uh, off to war and coming home, and then being interviewed by Weary Gardner, I think it would be in the 80s, maybe mm. the 70s. Mm-hmm. Fine, upright, well-spoken men, gentlemen, honourable, trustworthy. They were so wonderful. And again, you look at the rebel and you think, oh, my God. And it's like you say, welfareism. Tell me, is... In your judgment, is putting aside the politics, is David Seymour's Treaty Principles Bill a good way to proceed, or is it misguided? And I'll, I'll get—I'll just frame it a bit from my perspective. I have not studied it. I love the fact that we're getting to debate this whole concept of treaty principles and where they come from. But I'm funny enough, a little worried. And I think, well, maybe this is just an expedient, but I'm a little worried about the concept of a referendum deciding Mm. such a thing. Well, my reaction to that is that uh, uh, while the referendum would cement in uh an understanding of the principles of the treaty getting there would be destructive big time mm-hmm. look what happened to the referendum in australia uh the government uh, decided to push a referendum they pushed and pushed like fury uh the referendum was turned down basically by their own supporters and the government that tried to do all of this fell behind big time in the polls. Frankly, pushing for a referendum is not a guarantee of uh, political success. Uh, And with the legislation, the difficulty with that is that um, it can always be changed. Mm -hmm. I mean, there wouldn't be anything that would stop the next government uh, doing a Seymour Principles of the Treaty amendment bill. And so you haven't actually achieved anything in particular uh, or anything long term. Uh, But I think the only thing that a government can do 
is what it can do while it's got its own mandate. And that is to act according to your interpretation, our interpretation, its interpretation of the principles of the treaty in operation now. Um, There is a problem, of course, because there have been some terrible appointments to the courts in recent years. And you can't be sure that no. you won't get some crackpot judge no. uh, uh, make a ruling that um, you know is is far fetched, and um, so you've got to live with that. But mm. a government has to be prepared to bark at bad judgments. Mm. No point in just simply living with them. Uh, and we we are inclined to say that uh, the politicians make the laws, the judges decide them, and their word is final bullshit. Uh, if they make mistakes or do something silly, uh, a government has to, which is the one which is answerable to the people, has to be prepared to call them out. Mm. Now, I've had this conversation with you before. Uh, some time ago, but uh, listeners may not have heard it because I was on a smaller station then, and it was such an insight for me, and it was the entire history and origins of the principles of the treaty. And I was wondering, again, because you were there, if you could walk us through where these principles originate and come from. I can't, actually, because it's so nebulous. Mm. Uh, The first mention of the principles of the treaty were in, I think it was the Labour Party's manifesto in 1972, and we were going to introduce uh, a a Waitangi uh, tribunal which would deal with the principles of the treaty as they applied to -to day-to-day living. Well, no effort was made when the bill came in 1974-5 to define what those principles were. In fact, it was left in large measure to the tribunal to uh, sort of thrash that issue out. And nor was any effort made in 1985-86 when um, uh, we decided to uh, say in the SOE bill that went through Um, nothing in this act will detract from the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi. But again, they weren't defined. Well, the government got rather uneasy about all of this, and about 1988-89, David Longy and um, Geoffrey Palmer did make an effort to identify some principles of the treaty and cabinet approved them, but we didn't put them into law. And consequently, the whole effort passed away without uh, nobody ever knew them. In fact, I'm, I would be gasping to try and find where my copy of those principles actually uh, wow. is. And um, it, it, we've never made an effort since to try and define what the principles are. So in effect, we're flying blind, but this is the dangerous part. 
it's an invitation to radicals, and remember this one or two appalling law schools in this country, and uh, they're inventing stuff all the time uh, and playing around with the treaty. And even the Waitangi Tribunal itself now has uh, decided um, it hasn't got enough work to do, and it's decided to try to draw up a constitution. And uh, this is what uh, uh, Shane Jones was sounding off about the other day. Mm. Uh, Quite right. Yes, it's nothing to do with the tribunal, uh, but uh, they are not only going to try and work out uh, what uh, the constitution will be, but presumably redefine the principles of the treaty and decide who might be invited along to uh, help with the drawing up of the of the bill. I mean, get lost is my reaction, and uh, it should be the reaction of the governments. The concepts of partnership and co-governance has what set off alarm bells politically and through the electorate and has obviously led to a major flashpoint with the previous government being so far down the track of co-governance everywhere you look. These aren't the principles of treaty of the treaty, however you look at it. Are they? There's no... No, 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 no. I mean, even the word partnership Everybody keeps saying that that's what Lord Cook uh, said in his 1987 uh, uh, judgment. He didn't. He said that the uh, relationship between um, Māori and um, uh, non-Māori was akin to a partnership. He's obviously looking for something to uh, compare uh, the, the obligation to work together uh, and, um, of course, partnership becomes the defined statement in the minds of uh, all sorts of um, treaty ratbags. And, of course, now we have this absurd thing where the media repeat this ad nauseum without critical comment that somehow David Seymour is rewriting the treaty, <laughs> which is... Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it's it's absurd, but uh, all he's really doing is is picking the key items out of the treaty and saying, uh, "This we is can live what, with this. Yeah, this is what we will live with." Mm. And it's, I mean, you you I understand what David's trying to do. He he just wants to put a stop to this ever invent, inventive mm. uh, gravy train that is moving on with uh, Māori trying to devise a handful of Māori underemployed academics and Waitangi tribunal staff wanting to uh, um, imagine some new bit of gravy train uh, delivery that uh, um, they fancy. Going back to that 1987 decision and Robin Cook, that was significant. What was it about and what did it determine? Well, the government had decided in the SOE Act, and I think it was also with its plans in particular for 
the forestry corp that was going to be set up, that uh, it would sell the forests. And uh, Maori jumped in, uh, Graham Latimer, the head of the Maori Council at the time, jumped in and said, hang on a minute, um, the land underneath the forests is in dispute, the ownership of it. And so the government, the, the Robin Cook um, said, in effect, uh, that um, there couldn't be sale of the forests until such time as the ownership of the land underneath the forests had been determined. That produced an interesting uh, result. <clears throat> Indeed, the sale of the forests couldn't start yet. Um, the money from the, uh, the, the sale of the trees could proceed but not the sale of the land underneath. And uh, what happened was that um, a Crown Forestry Rental Trust was set up and um, a portion of the sale of the trees went into this trust and it financed research to help determine who owned the land underneath the trees. And uh, so when I went on to the tribunal, I was astounded at the huge amount of research that was being churned out all the time. And it was being funded by the Crown Forestry Rental Trust, which is still in business, I see, and is still financing uh, research. Millions and millions and millions quite, of dollars. Quite, quite well. I mean, you know, it, whenever there's a problem, follow the money trail. And the money trail goes back to the Ground Forestry Rental Trust. And if the government had any sense, it would actually change the terms of the Crown Forestry Rental Trust and uh, put the money into uh, more profitable things than uh, uh, endless research, particularly now that the ownership, uh, the historical claim part of the tribunal is long since finished. Mm. I have always been a person interested in uh, physical science, biology, and latterly economics. And now I found myself interested in history. And sociological and collectivist mumbo jumbo has always had me running a mile because, you know, my it makes my lids heavy <laughs> and its profundity of language. But last year, I realized all this was biting me on my proverbial backside. And I wrapped a cold, wet towel around my head and spent some months reading critical theory and its history, where it came from and how we understand it. And I now understand a little bit of where this madness what this madness is, because I just used to see that these people are insane. I didn't realize that there was a mad philosophical underpinning underneath it, that once you saw that, there was a source of this madness, because I could never understand how people were mad in the same way. Now, you're uh, originally a man of the left, 
you've studied the left, you have been with the left. In fact, I think your PhD was on uh, socialism. It was. Um, this is where it comes from in our universities, isn't it? Quite a lot, but yes. Yes, indeed. Tell me how you see it working. You've been a university lecturer. How you see it working in the universities and then being repeated by the journalists who travel through these sociological courses at university and how we have these young Maori beginning in the 70s who were radicalized at university. How do you see that explaining where we are and um, these bad ideas, if you will, and poured it into our university system and filling up young people's minds? I notice it, by the way, and you'll have it with your grandchildren, I'm sure, with, of course, teachers who have been through the same university system and they're inculcating quite oblivious to where their ideas have come from and unable to critique or receive criticism of their own ideas and they're literally propagandizing our school children at primary school with this stuff. Have you you have observed that in our university system down through to us to our journalists to our activists to our MPs? Yes, yes, um, it's it's true. Um, the universities in my day were more mixed than they seem to be now, in the sense that there were some quite conservative folk around and uh, uh, on the staff and uh, some lefties. I, most of my teachers were uh, of the left uh, and clearly influenced me, as did uh, my family and um, my friends of the family. Um, the university that I taught in was, uh, as I say, a more mixed affair. Uh, I was involved uh, early in the piece in uh, the fight against New Zealand committing forces to Vietnam. And uh, so I got to know most members of the staff. Only a handful of them would have been real lefties and opposed to uh, New Zealand being involved in Vietnam. Um, but today, I think it is that the left is associated more with an open checkbook and uh, all of them want more money uh, and they uh, have adopted a sort of a policy of uh, believing that the left is more likely to uh, give them the bed of roses that they'd like. And so that's the prevailing uh, policy that uh, they talk about to their students. I'm bound to say that some aspects of history have faded in the classroom. I think one of the worst things that the universities did in the 70s, 80s, I think it was, was argue that no longer was the compulsory retirement 
at 65, when I joined the staff, you retired on the 1st of January, the year after you turned 65. Mm. Well, mm. They, I did not know that. They changed that and said that under the human rights legislation, uh, you know, age should not necessarily count. And if you look around the universities, they're absolutely full of usually the weak ones who have just got a, an easy job and have stayed on uh, and um, some peddling old left views, many of them, that, uh, are, you know, got whiskers on them. Mm. And I think the universities are in very bad shape in this country. It's desperately necessary uh, that there be a revision. They should go back to some kind of compulsory retirement age. Mm. What happens is when you let oldies stay on the staff, young people uh, with ability can't get jobs. Mm. So they go off and do other uh, um, fields. We tend to see uh, youth as through rose-tinted glasses, but I recall being a lefty because I was a, went through high school and attended university. But I recall that the lefties at university, and indeed there are some lefties, I'm thinking of Chris Trotter, mm. who are open to debate, who are open to dialogue, who are open to criticism and arguing their case. They might be dogmatic right? because they're lefties, right? But we're seeing a whole new thing. And this ties into the treaty and the principles. Because we're seeing a whole new thing. Again, critical theory. Where truth, facts, and argument don't play a part. Truth is something which uh, uh, historians uh, try to um, uh, ensure uh, they establish. But um, argument is, of course, natural to, uh, to us all. Uh, yeah. But we don't see, we don't see the media or a national discussion about saying, well, where do these principles come from? What are they? Let's have a discussion. Let's try and understand what David Seymour is trying to say or do. We just have these Willie Jackson, quick, Hanehawera, quick one-liners. Oh, he's trying to rewrite the treaty. He's trying to push Mary down or what have you, right? And half the and journalists are the same. I mean, my half. <laughs> yeah, nearly all of them. Truth is, I mean, Mikey Sherman and Tianua Hura Hanganui uh, of TV One are both just agitators. Yes, and they're not really journalists; they're agitators, and uh, they want the government to fail. They want Maori to succeed. Anything that Maori want is good for them, and. Um, uh, I'm blessed if I can see how the Minister for Broadcasting can continue to tolerate TV1 operating the way it is. But uh, there we are. Well, it's become not just an enemy of the government, 
but an enemy of democracy hmm. because there was no honeymoon period. No. I love the idea of a media hounding a government, criticizing a government. But what we've had is a media that was fawning over the previous government, doing a very poor job uh, on the opposition in terms of informing us of what they were on about. And day one, attacking this government, misinterpreting and misinforming us about their intentions and their policies, you can't have that. You absolutely can't have that. that, that this is like, um, this makes it impossible, I think, to govern. Well, it's just another aspect of the slow decline of standards in New Zealand which is something really terrible. I mean, the educational system at every level is in trouble. Uh, the universities are in trouble. Um, uh, why would the media be any better? Uh, and in the end, you just hope that a government will demand that decent standards be observed. But will they? I'm a little pessimistic uh, about uh, progress. Well, I'm a little pessimistic because it's taken such a deep root. And, of course, it requires an apparanata or uh, a leader of some backbone, a Roger Douglas, um, a Robert Muldoon, who stands up and, rightly or wrongly, are prepared to be counted and you have a sense with Mr. Luxon, he's not that prime minister. He's a typical New Zealand prime minister, which is consensus and steady as she goes. Mm. Um, um, and we have fostered through our education and school system a view that's antithetical um, to living in a free and prosperous society. Mm. I want to finish just on a, a philosophical note, Michael, if I may. I'm always troubled by how we we see things in collectivist terms or tribal terms or group terms. And we understand normally what you're saying when you say Maori statistics and Chinese statistics and European statistics. And this is important data. But the locus of decision and responsibility is always the individual. Mm. And we find now that we're in a place where we have created this abstraction and made it real. So Maori think this, Maori are this, non-Maori think this, non-Maori are that and all the time we're racializing every discussion and every debate and every point of view and slicing and dicing the country when you and i know we're a homogenous even the great apparanata the great maori leader was part of India, which is a great story right we're we're living together 
we have we've got this wonderful interracial connection that we don't see in other race-torn countries like the United States of America. We are, and we grew up ultimately with this brilliant melting pot. We have to start thinking past group identity, do we not? I agree with that. Uh, and I suppose the problem has been that Māori themselves think of themselves as an entity. And mm. yet even that has changed in my lifetime. I mean, I remember at the end of the war, staying with my uh, friends, uh, my cousin actually, uh, just across the bridge in Narawahia, and uh, the Māori uh, people there. And I remember seeing the ones waiting, women in particular, with their mokus uh, waiting outside the pub for their men folk uh, to come out and being intrigued by this. But they were very dark. Yes. That they were, there were still plenty of them that would have been three quarters or possibly even some who were full Māori. But I mean, we're now in a world where there are no longer any full blooded Māori. The dilution rate amongst Māori is extraordinary. And yet you see them all, quite a few of them popping up on television who are no more Māori than my right foot. No. Uh, but they're claiming to be Māori, and they've, uh, uh, if they're of the female kind, uh, they've been putting a mocha on their chin, and it's it's make-believe stuff. Why is this happening? Because they perceive that there's a way of getting ahead of the rest of the mob by stressing your Māori ancestry. And so long as the Ardern Hipkins you know, favouritism, most favoured race uh, line was pushed. Uh, there was a spot for people like that. Well, I think the person, and I forget who it was, who said that the un uniformity or the unity of races in this country will be decided in the bedrooms of the nation, yes. <laughs> said the right thing. I mean, in effect, we're going to quite soon reach a stage where there aren't divisions on the basis of race. They're not possible. Mm. And, uh, and I, of course. But that's in my more optimistic moments. Yes. And of course, we need to go back, Michael, to the real determinant, which is where you started, which is socioeconomic and welfare dependency. Mm. And that's where, truly, the haves and the have-nots, those with a opportunity of a future and those with a dire outlook is being made. And that's not dictated by one drop of blood. Mm. And I feel sad that when we were of the left, we cared about people who were poor and who were stuck there. And now we have this great tranche of New Zealand, many of whom are Maori, or who identify as Maori, and they're poor and they're stuck there. Yes, and more and more and more of them, because mm. despite the special efforts to uh, based on race, 
they just haven't been working. The number of uh, uh, in poverty has increased despite mm. the Minister for Poverty Reduction mm. uh, first introduced in 2017. And uh, the Maori health statistics are not improving, despite the fact that we've had Aura now for 20 years plus. Mm. And um, the efforts made by district health boards to try and help Maori in particular, they're just not working. And it comes back to, uh, in my view, um, a lack of self-discipline. There isn't something that governments can do to fix everything for people. It has to happen with the individuals themselves. And you would expect by now, and you would expect long ago, for the penny would have dropped. Yes, that the iwi elites, there would have been a leader emerge amongst the iwi with all the resources that they have and said, we ourselves are going to take some responsibility for our people for whom we manage these assets on behalf of. And you would have a visionary like Aparananata, and you would say, education, education, education. We'll teach our kids ourselves because the state system is failing them in droves. Yes. Imagine it, what that could be, Michael. And I expected that to happen. I couldn't name you a Maori leader that, um, of these iwis, and you know they're sitting on billions. Yep. And I suspect, by the way, that they're in the background quite happy for all this agitation. Oh, absolutely, because they're sitting, they're in charge of the uh, uh, the redress money, uh, the tribal leaders, and um, uh, th- they uh, see it as uh, the responsibility of the government to actually continue to um, uh, fund welfare, to fund everything. I mean, if they were obliged to show signs of having actually done something for their uh, members of their tribes, I think you'd find that things just might change a little. Yes. Uh, they'd probably grizzle low at, at the next Waitangi. Yes. And we have this strange thing to end on. I Look, I'm actually quite optimistic for the future for some reason in 2024. But isn't it ironic? Because I think more and more people are seeing it, Michael. And I think David Seymour... I think it's a little misguided. I'm going to have him on, and I'm going to let him have a good say about his treaty principles bill. But he has sparked a debate. And don't we find it ironic that we have these great protests in New Zealand about these poor kids in the Gaza Strip um, being uh, killed? Uh, Nothing more innocent than a child. And the outrage. And yet we have such a poor understanding, couldn't, wouldn't know what river, what sea anyone's talking about. And yet just down the road, we have babies being killed by their families. And the families creating a wall of silence, silence, no one held to account, and not one protest on behalf of that little baby, that little toddler, nothing. And I think New Zealanders are looking at that And we're starting to say, hang on, and starting to connect the dots. And I have to say, Michael, your insight and your experience 
is part of the key to us getting that understanding, to go all the way back to Norm Kirk, all the way back to Sir Aparananatha, to understand uh, our history. What's that great George Orwell line? If you control history, you can control the future. And if you have power, you get to decide history. <laughs> Something of those words. Well, Putin, Stalin certainly believed the latter. Yes, yes. <laughs> so um, I thank you for coming on this morning with us, Michael. You are uh, a wonderful person, but it's great to share, have you share uh, your understanding, your experience, and your knowledge. Because, well, when you got to cabinet, there would have been few up until that point who were historians, academics, and then you were sitting through what was early 70s, 80s, momentous New Zealand politics, absolutely momentous. Nothing's matched it since. And you were witness to it, which is a great thing, a very fortunate thing, is it not? Well, I've written about it, and yes. uh, that's that's given me a lot of pleasure since then. Yes. Thank you for, um, for interviewing. That was Dr. Michael Bassett, historian, university lecturer, Waitangi Tribunal member, Auckland councillor, MP, minister, and writer, all-round thoughtful person who has, I would say, using the word correctly, a unique experience and understanding of New Zealand's recent history and able to reflect on it in his retirement from politics and explain it for us, how it has come to pass so that we can better understand our present circumstance and the way forward. You're on Radley Check Radio. It's been Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And boy, did we get some Real Talk. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning, everyone. You're on Radley Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, my goodness. Bit of palaver, of course, at Waitangi Day um, and the lead up to it. Uh, we're not talking about that as... But as a sidebar, we've got a very special guest along who has written the one book you must read. I don't say that lightly. If you read nothing else for the next five years, you should read Ewan McQueen's One Sun in the Sky because it is a beautifully written book. It is a beautiful history of New Zealand. It will make you proud to be a New Zealander. Not just for the great visionaries that led the settlement of this country, but also to the Maori leaders who joined with them and who signed the treaty. And it will also highlight for you how off track our modern political history and activists and politicians have become and how disconnected they are 
from our history, from our past, and from the great leaders that made this country possible. Good morning, Ewan. Good morning, Rodney. Thank you for your wonderful introduction. Well, I mean it most genuinely, because usually when you read a New Zealand book, you're a little disappointed because it's written for a smaller audience, doesn't have the money or the time put into it that a great work of fiction or non-fiction will have that's from the United States or the UK. But your book is clearly a labour of love in terms of scrupulous uh, attention to details and facts. And you've laboured over it to present it and write it beautifully. And it does. It's like reading about a great hero. or um, These people are heroes, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the book, um, it's One Sun in the Sky, the untold story of, of sovereignty in the Treaty of Waitangi. So it's looking at the whole issue of sovereignty uh, and how that was understood at the time of the treaty and, and in the years which followed. Uh, and in doing that, you know, you, you get to look at some pieces of New Zealand history which are really quite remarkable, and you find some leaders um, who are really quite remarkable. And, and I think of people like Henry Williams and, and the missionaries uh, who came to New Zealand. You know, they crossed thousands of miles of ocean to come here to spread the gospel and did amazing things uh, among Māori. Henry Williams in particular was just a, a, a real... A uh, man of integrity, a real man of courage and conviction. He was ex-Royal Navy. Um, he he just travelled all over New Zealand. Um, but, you know, but predominantly the book is about uh, Iwi leaders, tribal leaders, and because it's looking at how did they view the treaty which they had agreed to. And there's some wonderful stories there too about people like Tamate Wakanene, uh, Renata Kawepo, all sorts of chiefs all over New Zealand and their views about the treaty. So, and I, you know, I've tried to be fair and, and objective, and simply, pre- you know, just just let people present the the historical evidence in a way that people can see what they thought and what they said. And actually, many people, when they read the book, are quite surprised uh, at some of the statements that they come across. But um, yeah, it's all there for people to read. The book's actually going very well. I mean, nearly three thousand copies sold so far. Um, so people are finding it a very helpful uh, and, and engaging book. We'll do this at the start and we'll do this at the end. How do people buy your book, Ewan? Oh, it's predominantly online. I mean, there are a number of bookshops around New Zealand which have taken copies, normally because people walk in off the street and they've heard about it and they, and they request the bookstore to get it in. So people can do that. But predominantly the book is sold online. It's got a website. It's called You go to www.onesuninthesky. It's all one word, onesuninthesky.com. And you can order a book there for um, $39.50, and that includes uh, postage. Well, you should buy three because you'll read one and you want to keep it, and you'll easily give two away. And the two people you give it to will bless you because um, I can't I can't speak more highly of your book, Ewan. Um, Thank you. I, I don't think I've read. I look, I can't. I struggle to read the history books of New Zealand because they're slanted to me. And um, your book is 
these figures of our history in their own words. And you can't take their own words out of their mouth. They're there. They were there. They said it. And what I hadn't appreciated until I read your book, that it was recorded. And, yeah, there's, uh, there's an awful lot of historical evidence that is available um, that is written. You know, we don't have to rely on oral um, testimony, as it were. There is plenty yeah. of written evidence of what uh, the tribal leaders were saying. And, um, you know, in the book, I've tried to uh, strike a tone that is unifying, uh, that is honouring and respectful of, of all New Zealanders. Um, and I think that's important because we live in a time where uh, we are becoming increasingly polarised and there's quite a lot of inflammatory stuff going around, particularly mm. at the moment. And I don't think that's helpful. I think we need to engage with the issue, absolutely, uh, but we need to engage with it respectfully and 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 truthfully. And the title, One Sun in the Sky, is particularly poignant. Explain for us what that means and who said it. Yeah, well, that, that comes from a wee story about a meeting between um, Sir Joseph Ward, who was the Prime Minister in 1908, and Rua Kenana, who was Tuhoi chief. And in 1908, um, Rua Kenana came down to Whakatane and met with Joseph Ward on the beach, I think it was, uh, because there were, he had some concerns about the way um, the, the Crown was implementing its policies. And he raised the issue of of crown sovereignty and that, uh, you know, questioning whether there was crown sovereignty over all New Zealanders. And and Joseph Ward simply replied, look, there can't be two suns in the sky. There's only one sun shining in the sky, and that's King, I think it was King William at that point, um, or King George, I can't quite recall. But anyway, he said, look, there's one sun in the sky. Uh, there was one sovereignty in New Zealand, and it is expressed through the Parliament of New Zealand. And Uruk Kenana actually accepted his reply and he went back to Tuhoi and he actually wrote on a flag that he had one law for all. Now, as it transpired, <laughs> he, um, would be, he, would be, he would be opposed as a racist. <laughs> I know, I know. In the state um, age. Yeah, as it transpired, um, Tuhoi after that did suffer some serious injustice from Crown action. So uh, the, the Crown didn't actually treat Tuhoi with one law for all. Um, yeah. and, there's, and there's since been some treaty settlements around that. But the essence of the meeting was that, you know, look, there's one government in New Zealand, there's one sovereignty. Um, and so hence the title of the book. Yeah. What upsets me reading your book is the huge injustice done to the leaders of New Zealand at this time, the disparate leaders at this time, because the so-called colonisers have been totally besmirched mm. as having base motives and being greedy, nasty, and racist. And the Iwi leaders... The tribal leaders are treated by modern history or the modern interpretation of this time or the contemporary interpretation as ignorant. Hmm. And when you read your book, you come away so proud of the European leaders and their compassion and their integrity and their courage and their vision for the future. And you come away amazed 
at the tribal leader's vision, intelligence, and understanding. These weren't fools. No, not at all. And um, and I mean, they had travel. Yes, they had. And, uh, you know, just, just, you know, to qualify a little bit, I mean, not everyone was was the most wonderful person on earth on, on both course. sides. Uh, there, there was a mixed bag on both sides, but there were some really good leaders uh, in New Zealand at that time. And, the, and their vision in, in the treaty really was to create one country uh, under one sovereignty, two peoples. We, we weren't talking about everybody being the same. You know, as Apiranata later said, you know, we are equal citizens, but we're not identical citizens. So um, no one was suggesting that we should all just become Pākehā. Uh, and no one was suggesting we should all become Māori either. You know, there, there was a vision for having two peoples living under one government. And, of course, the treaty also um, promised uh, tino ranga tiratanga, self-determination for Māori, but that was always understood as being within the context of the overarching sovereignty of the Crown over all New Zealanders. Um, you know, the modern narrative is that we, you know, the, the treaty set up two governments, in New Zealand, the, the governor was only going to be over Pākehā, and and the chiefs retained full independent sovereignty over their own people. That's that's the modern narrative. I mean, the Waitangi Tribunal basically declared that 2014. Um, but the evidence doesn't support that narrative. The evidence, when you look at what the chiefs were saying, uh, which indicated what how they understood the treaty, they understood that this treaty was going to establish. Uh, the sovereignty of the Crown, the preeminent governing authority of the Crown over all New Zealanders, including themselves. And yes, they, they understood their chieftainship would be honoured, and they understood that their property rights would be respected, uh, and subsequently that did not happen. Um, but that's a separate issue, you know, mm. that is a separate issue, and New Zealand has been on a bit of a settlement journey for some years now, trying to put right some of those things, and that, that's good. It's not been perfect, but it's been, I think, very good. But on this issue of sovereignty, uh, it was very clear that the the vision at the time was quite different from the vision we are being told today. Um, and, you know, even in the last few days, uh, the, the misinformation and that gets promoted around the treaty, it's really quite disturbing. Um, disturbing. You know, our state broadcaster last night had, um, had a section on what the treaty meant on Seven Sharp, and, you know, it really was like, well, that was not the treaty I recognised at all. And, in fact, that was not the treaty that most New Zealanders recognised for 150 years, uh, including uh, Māori themselves. But in the last 30 years, things have changed, and now we have this revisionist narrative around the treaty creating two separate governments in New Zealand, dual sovereignty. I look forward to the day when... Every New Zealand student has a copy um, of One Sun in the Sky uh, in their school bag. And well, that would be great, yeah. Wouldn't that uh, – you can't imagine a more significant change occurring in New Zealand than that one thing, than, than actually did not, not, not even necessarily to have accepted your book, but simply to have read it. Yeah, well, I was I was interested to read the um, uh, was the Act Party Coalition Agreement with National. I think it was uh, where there was a statement about rebalancing the New Zealand history's curriculum. 
Mm. Um, and uh, in reading that, I thought well, I, should, I should contact the Minister of Education uh, and just suggest here, here's, here's a way that you could help rebalance. Just and even that, get it in the library. Exactly. Get 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 these into the libraries in New Zealand secondary schools so that people can have a choice about mm. whether they want to read an alternative viewpoint. Because at mm. the moment, uh, there is only one viewpoint that is presented. Um, and uh, <laughs> I was just thinking, actually, this morning, you know, it's not really one news anymore. It's one views. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, the view that gets presented is just completely one-sided. And New Zealanders are intelligent enough that if you put evidence before them and put two cases before them, they can actually decide, you know, which one they think is 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 the truth. Mm. There is three, four great books, I think, of, that I love about New Zealand, four great books. One is, two of them are by um, John Mulgan, uh, Report on Experience, Posthumous, from his experience in World War II. Right. Man Alone, which he wrote before the war. Uh, Charles Uppen, Mark of a Lion. Oh, yes. yes. Uh, I love that book. And yeah, that's book, right. And your book. And your book is the most significant because it's about our history and our present political troubles. And I, again, I just want to commend you because all the politics and all the hoo-ha and brouhaha that is occurring around these events, nothing will endure like your book. And I do commend listeners to buy and read it and gift it because yeah, we I have need to, say, to get this understanding out. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are, I get a lot of repeats um, from people who have read it and then they want some more copies. Um, and at Christmas, I normally do a, a bit of a special, um, and people come back and buy large numbers of copies yes, to I get it as, as gifts. So I, I get, because um, I advertise on social media, um, I get quite a bit of, um, uh, well, positive feedback now that the book's out there and people have read it, uh, from people who have read it, very, very positive feedback. Uh, <laughs> but, of course, I also get some, some rather uh, less than positive feedback, yeah. but it's nearly always from people who haven't read it. Yeah. Um, if people read the book, they will find they will normally be surprised and say, oh, "This this is this is a it's engaging, it's interesting. There are the stories about our history which people find fascinating. Uh, B it's well researched. It's uh, everything is referenced, and and C the 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 picture that is being presented in the book is is quite different, very different mm. from from what people have been told for the last twenty or thirty years about." Mm. Uh, the treaty and about our history. Yeah. Well, I commend and that's why you. I for, think it's so popular. Yeah. I commend you for being on social media because I couldn't stand it. I'm <laughs> a great. I'm a great fan of Twitter. Right. And I literally get my news now from Twitter. And right. Up to date with Twitter or X now, and I very much enjoy it. But for the life of me, I couldn't imagine posting on it because of. I guess they're trolls, that they're called trolls, but the absolute nastiness yeah. combined with the absolute ignorance of people. And I can even read, I'll read an interesting post and then I'll go and read the comments, which I enjoy. And same on the blogs. 
And the comments can be so nasty and so disturbing. They trouble me all day. Oh, like I, I, I get some of that stuff. And like even this morning, you know, I, I had to delete and block. I've, I've discovered the block function in, in Facebook, which has been a, a great discovery, you know, with people, um, you know, I got a couple of threats the, this morning and I just don't respond to mm. if, if people want to threaten you in any way. It's like, well, okay, here's, here's the block. We don't want to hear from you again. Um, I get some people who uh, want to engage and, and uh, ask questions. And as long as they do that respectfully, I'm, I'm happy to engage it a little and bit. And in good I, faith. Absolutely. You know, the whole, yeah. look, talk about good faith. I had another chap about a year ago who, who engaged me in what I thought was a good faith conversation. And then I got a private message from him saying that he was he was going to sue me. Um, it, it recorded everything <laughs> we'd said. And I, and I just thought, well, oh, goodness me. Um, a, I hadn't said anything defamatory, so you, you good luck with that, mate. And B, we don't want to hear from you again. Thanks very much. Yeah. Um, but anyway, you get... You get some people who are um, just shout and scream a lot, and, and you know those comments are just deleted. You get you get some people who who do want to engage respectfully. To be honest, there's not that many of them, and and I do um, try and engage, but I don't I don't go on and on because you can actually get into. I'm not here to debate the issue on Facebook. Anything, I'm here yeah. I'm here to promote a book, mm. and and the book says what I want to say, and it mm. says it in the way I want to say it, and with the mm. tone and the heart with which I want to say it. And that, that heart is a heart that wants to bring unity and kotahitanga across all New Zealanders, you know. Mm. And unfortunately, Facebook's not a great forum for that sort of thing. No. Um, I do, though, get some real gems. Uh, you know, like recently there's, there's a chap called, um, well, I won't mention his name, but uh, a Māori chap who just wrote, you know, it, people need to read this book. You know, it, I, it presents a view that it's not my view, but, man, it's a great book and, and you know, it's, a, it's really good for New Zealand. Um, beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful book. Now, hmm. tell me, what do you make of David Seymour's Treaty Principles Bill? You hmm. stood for politics. You followed politics a long time. Um, just to clear the decks, I love it that we're having the debate. Hmm. I'm not certain that a re I haven't studied the bill. I'm going to have David on shortly. Sure. But I'm not sure that a referendum uh, and legislation is the way to settle this difficulty. I, I'm I'm sort of very much uh, in agreement with your view, Rodney. I The bill hasn't actually been um, drafted as oh, yet. Oh, okay. That's probably why um, I haven't read it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think it's, we'll, we'll see it soon. Uh, but you can see uh, from the Act Party um, policy document what they are intending, you know. And, you know, they're basically saying they're taking the three articles of the treaty and they're saying, okay, here's a principle, here's the main principle that arises from that, and let's legislate and say these are the principles that should apply, and and then we'll have a referendum to confirm that. Now, my, my view has been that when it comes to history, uh, history is history. And I don't think referendums are particularly helpful in helping us to um, define history because the mm. treaty was what the treaty was. Mm. And, and, we, and the main point is that we we get to the bottom of what really what was it, 
everyone's going on about we need to honour the treaty. Well, um, and and we do need to honour the treaty. And I don't think there are many people who, who say we shouldn't. But the question is, what is the treaty that we are honouring? You know, what does it mean? Mm. And that's what my book speaks into. Um, and so I'm, I'm a little bit wary of having referendums to sort of try and, uh, you know, I just don't think our history can be decided by referendum. However, you can't imagine the Declaration of Independence or the American Constitution or indeed the treaty being set to a referendum. Uh, no. Because these are great principles of constitutional significance that need to be brought into. And, and they are enduring. Yeah, not they are enduring. At one point in time by 51%. Pre and precisely. I, hmm. I also have a concern that um, the point of principles and a constitution is that you don't disadvantage a minority view. Yes. Now, you and I understand that, and the principles of the treaty properly understood, the articles of the treaty precisely achieve that hmm. because they allow for citizenship that is equal and freedom and property ownership. And so determination, yeah. individuals are protected. But if we're going to set it up that these things can be decided by majority vote, you can end up subjecting yourself to the views of you, you can subject yourself to the views of the mob or a tyranny. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and yet I'm divided because I say to myself, the three articles are very clear. And when I read your book, they're very clear on both sides of the agreement and in both mm. languages. Absolutely yes. crystal clear. And they were understood. So I've got that historical fact. Then we have the present political situation. We're riddled all the way through legislation and government departments and indeed corporations. Is this notion of principles of the treaty without definition, and they are assumed to include things like co-governance and partnership, which is nothing could be further from the truth. And we somehow have to say, hang on, if we're referring to principles, we actually have to have a shared agreement as to what they are or get rid of the phrase that's driving us because yeah. it doesn't make sense. Isn't that no. true? Uh yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, just coming back to the Act policy, um, I, 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 I am I'm in two minds a little bit, perhaps a bit like you, um, because I don't think history can be decided by referendum. And, no. and when it comes to constitutional issues, you're right. You don't want a referendum uh, where the majority um, can actually negate um rights of minorities you can have the, the tyranny of the majority mm -hmm. um but you can also have the tyranny of the minority as well mm -hmm. um but the fact that it's brought to the fore the debate and the discussion mm -hmm. around the treaty and around the principles i think is a good thing mm -hmm. and you know i've never seen such um forthright debate and discussion 
about what did the treaty actually mean before? Because for, for so many years, we've not been allowed to discuss that. It's just been assumed that the treaty meant, you know, the modern narrative. At last, by the fact that we have this government and and the act policy around the treaty principles bill, and of course the New Zealand First uh, views on that as well, um, we had, the discussion's been brought to a head. You know, people are actually starting to talk about it, and I think that's a good thing. And if if this bill brings more uh, brings that question into the public square more for open debate, I'm you know I think that's probably a very good thing. Mm. Um, the problem with the principles of the treaty is, of course, um, they've never been defined. Um, they've uh, they've been the ones that have been put in place have been decided by courts, uh, by lawyers, um, by activists and, and and bureaucrats. And I can understand and the gravy train. Oh yes, and and I can under and so to be honest, some of them are quite good, um, yeah. uh, but. I can understand where David Seymour's coming from in terms of, hey, well, let's let the people decide what the principles are. Mm. Um, so discussion. Or, or have a discussion about it, yeah. Funnily um, enough, the best outcome may be a long, long debate and discussion about it, and the referendum, referendum never happens. I think that's probably what's going to happen. I mean, we know the National Party is not going to support yeah. this bill past first reading, mm. um, and good on them for allowing it to have first reading because that does allow the debate. It allows it go to, to go to select committee, and um, I look forward to putting in my submission when when the bill comes through. Um, so well, it will allow discussion, and that's good. Well, and also too, I funnily enough. I would quite like there to be a referendum as well because that'll just further the debate and the discussion um, and increase that shared understanding. And I think it's also, I've been hypercritical of David Seymour probably because, you know, I have too much of a vested interest in the ACT Party, but I was hypercritical of him over the whole COVID thing. And I just couldn't imagine that my own party would mandate require people to be mandate mandate people out of their work and this right. stuff i just it was just i couldn't imagine anything more abhorrent i mean it's bad enough that we had a government doing it to us but my own little party doing it to us as well was too much for me to bear right but i have to say for me david seymour almost redeemed himself by fronting up to Waitangi Day. And I've been reflecting on that this week because he could have suffered some serious violence there. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think, there you know, some I thought, hotheads, there were some hotheads yeah. in the crowd. And my memory of the day when I went was it was a whole lot more peaceful and communal and pleasant than you'd know from the news. I, th I think David said that himself, actually, about about yes. yesterday. Or the, was it yesterday? It's, um, yeah, we never. Anyway, but, it was yesterday, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but isn't it great that we he highlighted for us that you can actually front up and we can actually have this discussion 
and we can actually walk away. And yes, the news will try and make it violent and their people sparing their buttocks. And the media have done their job of making a compelling story and having one side read it and say, yeah, 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 show those sods what we're all on about. And then the other side is saying, oh, look at that. Isn't that terrible? This is so awful. And doing this great division thing, when mm. in fact David Seymour went up there, gave a speech, bit of controversy, sat there and had a few giggles and a few laughs, I bet, when the cameras weren't going, and headed home, showing that we're a lot closer than is portrayed. I, I think there are a lot more things that bind us together than, than pull us apart. Absolutely. And, you know, the the, the service, I don't know if you saw the, the Dawn no, service. No, I, 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 I am off grid. I don't watch the news. I right. just find that my um, sanity and temperament has greatly improved the less news I, wear, I watch. <laughs> Probably mine as well, especially when I um, I get, um, you know, one news telling, oh, sorry, one views telling us every night that the government, you know, Maori are rising up because the government want to to rewrite the treaty. And it's isn't like, that, isn't it's not that, rewriting the treaty. Uh, how um, but they could you be, it. how could you be so hysterically misinforming and call yourself a journalist well there's been a real um uh, you know deterioration in journalistic standards mm -hmm. in new zealand as it has been in the whole western world i think we we end up with people not presenting news and and different sides no. of a viewpoint it's just decided there isn't a, an approved viewpoint and that's the one we push and um of course one views Seems to do that very well. But anyway, the service at Waitangi yesterday morning, the dawn service, was actually a beautiful service. Yes. Um, many people spoke very well. There was one really lovely moment, actually, where a young Maori woman um, got up and uh, she said, um, and this was near the beginning of the service, I want to sing a song called Rescue because, you know, many years ago my life was a complete mess and no one could help me apart from one person. And that person was Jesus. And she yeah, said, lovely. it was just beautiful. And she sang this song and they panned around and I could see Tama Iti in the audience there with tears in his eyes. And I thought, there's hope for New Zealand. Yes. Um, and, and that hope is actually a person uh, and it's with a big H. So, you know, we when you look at sort of the, the, uh, the state of New Zealand and around this issue, it's very inflamed. And you do wonder sometimes, how are we going to settle this? Um, but I think one of the main ways in which we can look forward to settlement is look back to what built unity in New Zealand in the first place. And the thing that the, exactly, the thing that the treaty was founded on was the Judeo-Christian faith. That's why Māori signed the treaty. That's why they had trust, because they thought the, uh, the British crown was a... Uh, a representative of Christian civilization. Unfortunately, they were let down later. There's no doubt about that. But in the beginning, New Zealand was founded on a vision of, of trust and honor and respect, and the Christian faith was very much part of that. And uh, if we want to um, regain that sort of unity in the future, we are going to have to look again to our roots and mm. Christianity, and I think that's very important.
and that's what I was so touched by that that young woman uh, just talking and singing that song about who had helped her, Ihu Karaiti. Isn't it interesting that when you're in a debate and you're not getting anywhere, you sort of have to step back a level and get some first principles established. Mm. And that's what a Christian belief does because it's something that any New Zealander can identify with, even a non-believer. And isn't it wonderful when you have this supernatural, beyond our comprehension belief, but told always through personal testimony? Mm. Because it, it touches you, this young woman's speech touches you on a one-to-one level because it's her personal testimony. Yes. But at the same time, it brings you into this huge, holistic, metaphysical view of the universe. And it is amazing because I would be sitting there with tears in my eyes, agreeing with her, right alongside Tamaiti. Mm, yes. And you're right. I, I, you know, that, that's just, it gives me hope. It gives I me hope for, for our nation and hope that we can find a way forward. Mm. Um, because sometimes you look at it and you think, man, how's, how are we going to sort out this mess? Because people are so um, uh, aggressive in their views and people are so adamant that you know we never gave up sovereignty. We never, and and frankly, they're so misinformed about our mm-hmm. history. Uh, and you think, well, how how can you have two sovereignties in one country? It doesn't normally work. It normally ends up uh, in conflict, and we don't want conflict in New Zealand. No. We don't want that. Um, so we need truth about our history, but we also need someone else who can help us. And I believe that someone else is the same someone who helped that that beautiful young woman who spoke at the service yesterday morning, yeah. Because it is takes you out of yourself. Yeah. It has, has, has you sort of looking down on yourself and down on the situation and causes you to reflect not about what suits you, not about um, what you want, but about what is right and true. And again, that's why you can move Tamaiti and you can move a hard heart like me. Um, tell me, you mentioned there, and this is a question of a theological nature and historical nature. You said that it was founded on Judeo-Christian uh, views, which is something I would say. But what's the Judeo bit? Oh, the Judeo bit is simply because Christianity itself um, arose out of Judaism, you know, yes. Jesus Christ, Ihu Karaiti, um, was actually, he was, actually, a, Jew. He was a Jew, Yeshua. Yeah. And so uh, our roots are in Judaism and in Israel, uh, historically. So that's why people talk about Judeo-Christian views. And actually, Christianity is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. You know, the New Testament yes. is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so Christianity doesn't negate Judaism, it just fulfills it. 
Um, and that's why people talk about Judeo-Christian views. I mean, so, I, it was, so would those early missionaries have used that phrase too? I'm not sure. Um, probably among Maori, they just kept it simple um, and talked about ihu karaiti, you know, um, yeah. Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, te atua tama, te atua wairua, you know, the Holy Spirit. Um, so, but I, I just think, I always think when we're talking about these sorts of things of Tamatu Wakanene, who, uh, you know, at the Koimarama conference in 1860, uh, this is like 20 years after the uh, signing of the treaty. You know, he said, he said, you know, we wouldn't be here today. It was a big conference, a lot of tribal leaders and, and, um, and uh, you know, Donald McLean and others uh, in, the, in the government. He said, we wouldn't be here today under this one roof if it wasn't for the word of God. And he was talking about the Christian gospel. You know, this is what has brought us, allowed us to be in this place. And that is the way he wanted to go forward. And so I, I think, you know, if we need something that can help us bring unity in New Zealand, it is the Christian faith. There's no doubt about that. Uh, because it's like you say, it allows you to step back from your own opinions uh, and, and in humility try and assess what is true. Mm. And also in humility look and say, you know, what is best for us as a whole, as a nation, for my, my brother here? my brother there, whether they're Pākehā or Māori, um, what is best for us all rather than just adamantly going at, you know, um, a particular political ideology. How was it possible for those missionaries to arrive in New Zealand and Christianise, if that's a word, it was very difficult. It was, I mean, the, the first uh, interactions began around 1814, of course, when Samuel Marsden arrived in the Bay of Islands um, and preached the gospel, uh, Te Haranui, uh, at uh, Rangihua uh, on Christmas Day, which was pretty pretty impressive that the first Christian sermon in New Zealand was on Christmas, Christmas Day, 1814. And then, you know, after that, Samuel Martin wasn't based here. He was based in uh, Sydney. They sent a smaller group of missionaries who struggled uh, until about 18. And when you say they sent, who's the they? It's the church itself. The the they is like predominantly the Anglican um, Church Missionary Society. So this Mm -hmm. is the CMS, as they called them in England. But there was also the the Methodists, the Wesleyans. They also sent uh, missionaries from the the Wesleyan CMS, uh, Catholics also, but they were a bit later. but in those in those years between 1814 and 1822, there was just a small band who were really struggling. And then this one intrepid, courageous individual arrived with his family, um, Henry Williams, you know, ex-Royal Navy. And he transformed uh by his leadership what was happening. And he and he changed the focus so that instead of because Samuel Marson had had a view that you need to civilize, you know. And um, he's in, in, in William's view, civilized first. And, and William's view was, well, we need to learn Māori. We need to learn today. We need to engage with these people where they're at. You know? <laughs> and so he, he changed the whole focus. 
And we also need to share the gospel. We need to share the Te Haranui with them directly. And for the next 10 years, there was further struggle, but things were starting to, to change. Uh, you had the musket wars, of course, through the, the 1820s. Um, the missionaries were, because of that, were very much restricted in the Bay of Islands because it was just too dangerous to go out into the rest of New Zealand. But the, the wonderful thing that started happening was that, uh, you know, Napui would go out on raids, take slaves, bring them back to the Bay of Islands. Uh, the slaves would come under the influence of the missionaries, uh, become Christians. Their their owners would also become Christians, and they would release them, you know, as, as a, an expression of their Christian faith. They'd set free their slaves, and then these people would go back, and they went back to places all over New Zealand and take the gospel with them. And so Isn't what you found, wonderful. yeah, and what you found was um, sometimes Williams and others would then, when the musket wars did sort of phase down a bit, they finally got to go out into the rest of New Zealand. And what they found was they'd turn up at places and the, the whole village was already Christian. And the, the, they'd be singing the songs. They'd be, uh, and so it's like, in spite of being restricted, the 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 Haranui had gone forth anyway. And then in the 1830s, you know, when when after the musket wars had phased down quite a bit, uh, the gospel just really took off across many Māori in New Zealand. And there were many commentators who thought that New Zealand had become a Christian country. You know, there was just tens of thousands of Māori who had become Christians. The, the Māori New Testament, Te Kawanatahu, uh, had been printed in Paihia. And the, the demand for copies was just, you know, there was always exceeding the supply. And there were thousands and thousands and thousands of copies going out because Māori was so hungry for the message of it. And that laid the foundation for what then happened in 1840 in the treaty. And people don't really realise this um, because Māori had accepted the gospel. They had, And as I said before, they said, Let's have one government, one one country, under God, uh, and uh, they they considered the British Crown to be a representative of Christian civilization. As I say, they were disappointed by that down the track, but that's how it began. Um, the, it's extraordinary story because what is it you and about those or Christianity and the Christian missionaries? This is going to sound controversial if I was an activist or sitting in you know, <laughs> your high school. But what be the was first the, thing in this interview, yeah. Rodney, that's controversial. What was it about them and the Christian faith that had them spreading the word of God and having it and having it accepted without force? Well, I think that's that's the truth of the gospel everywhere in history isn't it when when it's a voluntary thing people uh, you can't force people to accept uh, uh, christianity it's always been um something where where it truly takes root where people are given the freedom they're presented with the news um and they're given the freedom to choose and that's that's what happened in new zealand and I mean, of course, it's interesting that uh, the, even 
even uh, people like Claudia Orange and others say how influential uh, Te Kawanatahu, you know, the Māori New Testament was in helping Māori understanding of the treaty because some of the words from yes. Te influenced would have influenced their understanding. And uh, I, I, she has a particular view of how that would have influenced them. Uh, I agree that it would definitely have influenced them, but perhaps in a very different way from the way that Claudia Orange suggests, and I go into that in the book, yeah. Yes, because it's hard to picture now, but actually if you're a Christian, you can see it. But this idea of a people who have lived in New Zealand for six, seven hundred, eight hundred, nine hundred years, and before that, wider Polynesia, having their customs and their mores passed down from generation to generation, this is how it's done. Having these magical, mythical beliefs, having chiefs, holy people, and almost in a flash of an eyelid, in a click of your fingers, the word of God right through New Zealand, mm. spontaneously. And a people changing their entire worldview. Not so much your entire worldview, but yeah, absolutely. Christianity was 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 different from a lot of the the customs of, of Maori. Absolutely, yeah. But uh, and if you were a slave owner, right, and you give up your slaves, that didn't happen in the South. In the South of of United States, sure, yes, no, right. they were the the good Christians were slave owners. Sure. And here you had Maori saying this is wrong. And I can imagine if you were a slave who had been released, you'd be going home pretty keen to be a Christian. <laughs> but harder to imagine being a slave owner and saying, oh, I'm going to be a Christian and give up my slaves. Like that's a real consequence and cost. To the it truth. is, and it shows, I think, that the change was genuine. It shows that what was, that the, you know, the, the change of heart was not just an outward thing. It was actually a very genuine change of, of um, heart when, when many Māori became Christian. Because, as you say, you don't do that sort of thing um, if it's just a, an outward change of form. You do it if it's a true change of heart. Huge change of heart. And, again, voluntarily, spontaneously no force of arms and again that christian base or judeo-christian base to new zealand's foundation is written out of our understanding it's all about colonization yeah it's, it's you know it's a very negative view of christianity now um among the the academics um but again i think if people just read the history, the, you know, the, the documentary evidence that's available, they would come to some different conclusions. I mean, one of my favourite books, you've talked about your four favourite New Zealand books. Um, one of my one is is Henry Williams. Uh, no, it's not by Henry Williams. It's by his brother, William Williams. 
And he wrote a book called Christianity Among the New Zealanders. Oh, and I've not heard of it. It's a wonderful book. You can you can get it on Google, I think. Okay. Um, it's quite rare now. Uh, but I found that book many, many years ago, and I picked it up, and and I, I thought, gee, this looks interesting. And it was absolutely fascinating. It was printed in 1867, and it, it tells the account basically from 1814 of, of the work of the CMS missionaries in the Bay of Islands and the rest of New Zealand from that point onwards. And when you read that book, yeah, it's all firsthand. It's all this eyewitness stuff, people who were there. Um, it is just fascinating to see uh, the way that change came to New Zealand, real change, real honest-from-the-heart change. I mean, there's a wonderful story, I think, of um, uh, talking about Te Kawanatahu, you know, and, and the demand for that. I think no Pera Panakarea, um, sent uh, a gold sovereign to Paihia because he wanted, he, you know, and he said, please send me my copy of Te Kawanataho. And in, in, in all that, he had sent a gold sovereign. People wow. were hungry, people and hungry across New Zealand for the gospel. Yeah. And, of course, we struggle to read the Bible now. <laughs> Some people do, yes. <laughs> um, I read it every day, uh, Rodney. Um, but, uh, well, I, but if you know what I, I mean, try to. I try to. Yeah, you 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 can't imagine in your mind's eye. Yes, uh, back then, a Maori who's grown up pre pre European settlement, virtually sending a gold sovereign to read the Bible. To me, that's yep. extraordinary. It's no, absolutely. People... People were hungry. People What's were the name of that book? Hungry. William Williams, and the book is called uh, Christianity Among the New Zealanders. And that is a book that might be out of print, but we can read it on Google Books online. Yes, yes. Oh, wonderful! I will definitely look that up. That sounds um, sounds absolutely fascinating. So, in your view, when we're looking at this discussion and this debate, and you watched that dawn service on TV, did you? Yeah, I, I watched it last night. I, I I didn't get up at dawn. <laughs> I watched. I I have so, been to a dawn service at Waitangi, yes. but um, that was uh, uh, twenty twenty. But um, no, yes. I I got up. I, I sorry, I watched it last night. Yeah. Yes. So, in your view, that wonderful lady's testimony had cut through. Absolutely. Yeah. And the wonderful and, thing about it was that. Um, I don't know who had set the the agenda or or the order of service, but whoever did so knew that what she had to offer into that service was going to really set the tone. And so they put her pretty much at the beginning, and I, I just think it was wonderful, yeah. Mm. So we can't solve – this is my view, and I'm putting words into your mouth, but it's, it's leading on to this, is that – we can't solve this at a policy level. We need to reach back spiritually as to who we are and what we believe. And our shared understanding comes to us from Christ. 
and that's think, something we yep. have in common and that the rest is noise yeah i think i think that's a fair summary rodney we do have that judeo-christian heritage in common people don't realize it but probably maori yes. have more of a judeo-christian heritage in new zealand than many pakeha do um we that is what we have in common that is the way we will find our way forward yes we do need policy um answers as well and i, I think we can't just go forward and, and do nothing in terms of policy uh and but we need the, the but we need to as you say first come from a basis of of uh, that Christian faith that has informed and brought unity in the past so that together we can work our way forward with some practical policy issues. Fascinating. I, I, I'm reflecting on this quite hard because a whole new insight to me that you've brought to the discussion. And I just don't see, I just don't see how, given the level of anger and angst and and misinformation we can do this without someone else helping us to do yes. it and that someone else is someone that we have historically had good relations with both peoples in new zealand mm. um, and you know it's a problem in new zealand for all sorts of things you know we have turned away from the judeo-christian values that build strong families in new zealand and we have so much social disintegration and and problems because of that. I mean, you, you've heard me over years saying this, Rodney, at, at, I have. at, at candidates' meetings. Um, and, you know, when you turn away from those values and indeed from the person of the values, you you have problems. You have social problems. And, and families fail. And when families fail, governments grow because governments have to pick up the pieces all mm. over the place. And we have so many social problems and economic costs uh, that have come into our country because, as a nation, we have turned away from those values and from the person of the values. And for us to, as a nation, turn back to Yeshua, that you well, could I'm, I'm like a little child. I, I'm like a little child because I've only recently accepted Jesus into my life. Right. And so I have a very clear understanding of what it was like before. Right. And what it is like now. Like, literally, it's a year ago. <laughs> so, and what, what's it like, Rodney? What's the difference? Ah, uh, it's wonderful. Yes. It's truly wonderful. And what's particularly wonderful is I regarded modern society as having a thousand and one problems that if you fixed one of them you would think you'd done a major achievement right whereas now i regard it as having but one yes also while i was a person who i regarded as well-read and with a good understanding I had no coherent view of the world around me of which I was a part. Right. That includes what is happening day to day, our history and our future. And it most notably comes 
to me because we have started the school year and I go along to the various school functions and and the end of year ones too, by the way. Right. And what is noticeable to me is you can't help but reflect back when I was at school and there was a Christian view of the world. And so you'd have the pantomime or the play or the nativity scene, and there was a shared understanding and a shared set of values. Yeah, even if everybody weren't necessarily believe. Yes, that's been totally expunged, and the schools find themselves in need of something to inspire the students. And I've noticed two things. One is they inspire the students by the appeal to the self. Right. And so they say things like, oh, it's very important that you find your passion and pursue it. And I'm thinking, no, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have your passions and your passions come and go like, you're not going to make a living or live a good life by endlessly following your passions. That's a sort of recipe for narcissism of, of an indulgence following your passions. So I noticed that all about the self and unlocking the child and child-centered learning and all the rest because they can't allow for there to be something bigger than the child in the room. Sure. And we had God and country that was bigger than us in the room. We mightn't have gone along with it and thought it was a bit of, you know, hokum, but it did bind us. Then I noticed, then I noticed that um, they did a wonderful school sort of pantomime or play or dance and singing and music. And it was all about the mythological history of the local area, you know, the Tanafars and the making of the mountains and the making of the rivers and all the rest of it. And it was this bizarre and quite frankly absurd hodgepodge paganism with bits grabbed from, you could literally see it grabbed from Maori mythology, a bit of Buddhism, <laughs> you know, the sort of new wave spiritual thinking of nature. And I was sitting there watching this and thinking, you know, we would be doing a nativity play. Like a deep. That's right. Yeah. And, and Christian, Christian Carol that, at Christmas. Yes, yeah. yes. That reached all the way back across thousands of years across mm. the world. And here yeah. we are with the teacher dreaming up some, her own almost religion yeah. and presenting it. And um that's when I notice it. And this yeah. the, the self self-indulgence of the kids. You know, I went to the local high school where, by the way, my my wife will growl at me now, but I can't I can't stop. Um where the kids oh, did you should pull up there. <laughs> yeah. The kids did their entrance and the teacher says, Now, if you identify as a boy, tick the boy box. If you identify as a girl, tick the girl box. And if you're gender fluid, just put non-identified. Yeah. 
this is the 12 and 13 year olds and yeah. and and my daughter says none of them thought that was remarkable that's how they've been brought up but you see that this is what happens when you when you turn away uh from our judeo-christian roots this is where you end up you end yes, up with not, you don't just end up with silliness you end up with delusion and you end up yes. with harm because these yes. things People think this is, oh, it's just a bit silly. I'm sorry, it's not just a bit silly. This is an ideology that is going to cause harm to a lot and a lot of young people, and already is. Yes, but indeed. Anyway, Rodney, just just isn't it remarkable that, um, you know, w- when I think of that service at Watangi and that, that young woman who was who spoke about how Ihukuraiti, Jesus Christ, had put her life back together. Yes. And... And she was completely changed. And, and it's available and, to all of us. Exactly. And then I think of you. Mm-hmm. And I think is you know, totally different. Totally different. Totally different person. And yet what? Same thing. Same thing. Same story. Total a change. I think of me, mm. you know, mm. uh, for, I don't know, 40 years ago now, 38 something years ago. Uh, you know, I, I gave my life to Jesus Christ uh, at school in my final year and how that changed me. Um, and yet you, me, this young woman, we're in our family. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, and so and and that's where can, the unity comes, you see, because that's dip- where you start to build on that because uh, that consensus. reaches across because in Christ we are made one. And it doesn't matter whether you're Māori or Pākehā, in Christ the, the dividing walls are removed and we are made one. That doesn't mean we're made identical. But it means we are made essentially one family. Yes. And it's on that which you build a strong nation. I agree thoroughly. And um we gotta move beyond the argument to a shared belief and respect. Mm. Tell me, this is a personal question on which to end. And sure. it's totally self-indulgent. And I want you to answer honestly, and I will not be offended. You think I haven't answered everything honestly, Robert? <laughs> no, I know you have, but this is of a personal nature. Sure. About me. So people have said to me, oh, Rodney, we so love you. You know, I didn't like you when you were in politics. I thought you were a horrible person, and you seem so nice. Now, I have always regarded myself as a nice person. And I've always thought to myself when I've read these comments, oh, yes, well, that was, you know, how the media portrayed me. But I'm actually lately becoming of a view that actually I wasn't a very nice person, right? I think I had nice sides to me, but that, you know, I was a politician sort of first and foremost. And that actually I have got older, I have matured, as as you know, become a Christian, it changes you. You stood against me. We stood together. I yes, we say, did. Better. What year was that? Oh, look, I, I was a candidate for um, Christian political parties over a number of years. And, and in I would, Epsom. Yeah, in, in Epsom. Epsom. Yeah. Yeah, what, uh, but there were also meetings that I think you were we were both at where we were candidates presenting yes. on different topics, not just in Epsom, but other. How did you find well. me? How did you find me, honestly? I'm yeah, interested me, to know. You want me really honest? Yes, I do. Um, I actually liked you, Rodney. 
Oh, I, the... <laughs> I, I mean, I, you know, there were some politicians who um, shook your hand and looked over your shoulder to find the next person they could talk to. Mm. I won't name names. Yeah. Uh, there were other politicians who just ignored you. Um, but as I always said to my wife, you know, Rodney Hyde, I, I don't necessarily agree with where he's coming from politically, and I think he's missing the mark um, on, on a number yes. of things. But at least he remembers my name. At least yes. he actually shakes my hand and says hello. And so I always had actually had a lot of time for you, Rodney. Um, so it's oh, too hard on yourself. <laughs> now, it's such a funny thing because you know how you have a, you know, we know ourselves mostly by gossip and, you know, least well. And I thought, well, I, you know, I, I wonder. And um, I've always been, I think, respectful, particularly of candidates. You know, yes, I'm I think you were. Very, you were. I, I'm not very nice. I wasn't very nice to other politicians, but to me, they had entered, you know, the ring. And if they were going to have a go, I was happy to have a go, and I quite enjoyed it. But and in I some ways, like, we were all. Like, I always was, you know, when we were at a candidates meeting, it's like we were all in this together because yes. everyone was expecting you guys. We, in terms of the candidates, yes, you had to give us all the answers, and yes. if we didn't get the answers. You know, we're not going to vote for you because you don't have all the answers. And I often yes. thought, man, we don't necessarily have all the answers. We have no. some things that we want to um, yeah. promote. So I always felt a, a sense of um, uh, unity in some ways with other candidates, regardless of what party they were. I for. think, too, I have always had a respect for Christians. I think that came through, Rodney, yeah. And, like, I always had a respect for Bob McCroskey. He and I would get on the radio, Radio Rima, and debate issues. But I always respected him. And we had an MP, Owen Jennings, who was a committed Christian. Oh, yes, I remember Owen. I stood against and, him in Taranaki King Country. There you go. And I always appreciated and supported him when there was a conscience vote, voting with his conscience, because I thought, if you're a Christian, you don't answer to Parliament or to the politics of the day. You've got a bigger call to make, sure. and I can't override that. And and of course, in hindsight, I realise on every vote that he had, he was uh, absolutely uh, uh, correct. But sure. um, it's a it's a it's a very very interesting thing to reflect on uh, 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 about that politics. Well, I'll tell you one funny story and then we'll close, but it's just an interesting thing. Tariana Turia and I were very close friends. She was, of course, the founder and leader of the Maori Party. That doesn't surprise me, actually. I, I, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. No, well, the way that happened was, was just like you say, uh, and she was joined later by Peter Sharples, but of course she got uh, kicked out or left the Labour Party Yes. And she was, boy, you leave that left, you leave the left, you leave the Labour Party, you are hated. Mm. And she and I would turn up, and it was 2005, to TV debates and to public debates, and she was the leader of the Maori Party and I was the leader of the ACT Party, and everyone hated us, not, not of the crowd or the TV people, but Labour and National both hated us equally. They were trying to work out who they hated the most. And so <laughs> no one, you'd be waiting to go on TV, and absolutely no one would talk to us. 
Right. Um, and, and they were the National Party was never rude to me. They just ignore me. But the yeah. Labour Party would be absolutely vicious to Tariana. So naturally, we would end up sort of in a huddled in a corner, chatting away gaily to each other, and became quite firm friends week after week uh, through the campaign. And then blow me down um, when we both got into Parliament in two thousand and five. We were seated together side by side. Ah. So we spent many, many hours um, sitting there, chatting away, uh, sharing stories. And it's exactly like you say, when two candidates from disparate views had um, brought together by the wriggles of politics, it was like yeah. um, we, we became very close. And interestingly, of course, she was a Christian. Yes. And... Um, I realised, well, looking back on it, we had the shared understanding. Yeah. No, I have a lot of time for Tariana Teria. Yeah. yeah. I think she's got quite a different view on some of the things that are going on at the moment. Mm. I bet she well, has. She can speak for herself. <laughs> yes, I, I, I bet she has. I remember one time with her, I hope she won't, won't mind me saying this, but we were we were meeting and I we were talking before the election. I said, you know, maybe we could have a cup of coffee and just talk about how things could go in 2005. And or maybe it was two thousand and eight. It was two thousand and eight. Sure. And I said, um, one thing you might have a bit of a problem with Tariana that we are big on is our law and order policy. And I was trying to put it gently. And I said, you know, when people murder and rape and that and commit violence, um, we think they should get a strike, and there'd be three strikes, and each time they re-offend they sort of get a bigger punishment to send a message. And so the first strike, they just get their sentence. The second strike, they get the sentence, but no parole. And the third strike, they get the maximum sentence allowed under the law automatically. And she looked at me and she said, why three strikes? Why not just one? <laughs> <laughs> but right. then she had to add that maybe Pitta didn't have such a view but yes. it's just it's just this wonderful thing again of reminding ourselves how much we share in common our humanity mm. our history our christian belief our christian origins to our country and nationhood and how we need to appeal to that more than just argue with each other endlessly absolutely yeah no. you uh, we're going to remind everyone of your wonderful book. I'm out of practice. I've forgotten to tell everyone that I'm speaking with Ewan McQueen. He is an economist, an analyst, uh, an author, a politician, and he's written a wonderful book called One Sun in the Sky. I got the title right, Ewan? Yeah, that's right. It's One Sun in the Sky, the untold story of sovereignty and the Treaty of Waitangi. Yeah. If you're listening, if you've got $39, go without dinner tonight and buy the book because that's how significant it is. It is actually food for your soul, for your mind, for your understanding. And it's a beautiful book. I couldn't recommend it uh, highly enough. And if you can afford it, get a couple because you will want to share it. And the more people that read that book, it's a bit like reading the gospel. The more people that read that book, the better off our future will become. 
And even those people that understand our history well and are on the right side of the discussion, that is to say they agree with you and I, still read the book because you'll understand why it is so important and you will be inspired just like in reading the gospel. Thank you, Ewan. Thank you for your time. You're wonderful. I hope you'll come back and share us, share your views with us. You're on Radley Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for listening. It's a bit nervous being back, um, forgetting to push the bright buttons. But here we are, and it's so wonderful to be sharing the morning with you and also our wonderful guests, how lucky we are and how truly blessed we are with the great guests that we can have on our show. And here in New Zealand, we have truly amazing people. Thank you for listening. Oh, it's Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, and it's mailbag. And we've got some, of course, from the end of last year. And I did a bit of a squint at the first couple. And I'm a little bit embarrassed because they're so full of praise. But um, I'll keep humble, even as I read them. But it's for all of us on the show to enjoy. Here's some general feedback to our show. You're a living treasure, Rodney. It has been a year of great shows with lots of interesting interviews and commentary, but time for a Christmas break with the family. Looking forward to listening next year. Well, if my mum was still alive, I'd think that was from her. So thank you for that kind note. Hello, Rodney. RCR has changed my life for the better. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for your contribution. It has been a delight to get to know you better. I agree that you're a living treasure. Love and best wishes to you and your loved ones for a happy and safe Christmas and holiday period. I am already anticipating your delicious schedule of interviews in 2024 from Kay. Thank you, Kay. And we're back, and I hope you had a great break. I heard from a listener to RCR today who told me that Rodney's articles were her lifeline since RCR started. Split family relations since the country was lied to. And through it all, RCR is her mainstay. For her, Rodney and Peter are extra special. This is true for so many. Not sure if you all know that, but there'll be many thousands who feel the same for Rodney's interviews in RCR and the interviews of all. We're all different, but we have a common bond. We know the truth. Thank you so much. We have a truly wonderful, have a truly wonderful Christmas. You deserve it. Huge thanks for Mary. Hi, Rodney. You're a godsend in media. Just know you're doing an important job here. I assume you're doing this while maintaining your business as well. Looks like we've got the left on the run. We did it. Yes, indeed. I feel 2024 is turning things around. It's a start. Rodney, much gratitude for your empathy and compassion and intelligence. Oh, thank you indeed. Hi, Rodney. I just love RCR. So, so grateful. I'm a foundation member. And aside from wanting to put my money where my mouth is and delighted to contribute to RCR, promoting freedom and restoring the fourth estate in your corner, I so appreciated finally being able to hear Winston Peters' side and perspective and love all the interviews. I enjoy your rants. I hope you stay on the massive injustice read the jetty on Lake Rotorua. Oh, yes, we should follow that up. And the COVID inquiry. Oh, my goodness, yes. Have you found out who is in charge of the range and limits? Cheers to a great 2024, and God bless you and RCI. I hope the three founding ladies receive great national honour for what they've done in our corner of the world. Without them, New Zealand would be a WEF poster child. Jen, would we? What? Oh, my goodness. And here's comment on Mary Hobbs's interview, the lovely, lovely Mary Hobbs. Hello, dear Rodney. Regarding the new government and the ongoing jab gene therapy, it is important to remember that ACT, and in particular National, have behaved horrifically. 
Absolutely, I agree with you there. They kept on saying to Labour that they're too soft and should withdraw all support for people who's not getting all jabs. Yes, they did. Never forget. Luxon said terrible things. He did. And they supported it all in Parliament, including the self-ID. As far as forced medication goes, National is just as bad news as the old lot. Thank you, Rodney, from my heart. I agree with you. And I will never forget, never forgive. Talk with Mary. You're assuming that the people in the government care about New Zealand people. You don't seem to think that they're inherently evil people out there. Once you get the point, they don't care, and that type B personalities rise to the top. You can then understand that they can continue to stick their fingers in their ears and their own self-benefit. Then they will ask for forgiveness when the evidence is insurmountable. They know what they are doing. Okay. Rodney, today's show with Mary was a good interview. Overview of Barry versus the government. Too bad the shots keep being pushed while all the information is showing the wrong. Evan, it's COVID-1984. That's quite good. Hello, Rodney. I like the humanity that you show in your RCR interviews and really appreciate that you're part of the team working to shine the light on all the undemocratic, to put it mildly, stuff that has been happening and enable a wide range of civilised, unfettered discussions to happen. There's one thing, though, that for me would certainly increase my level of satisfaction with your interviews. I'm taking the trouble to write to you because I think the work you and the RCR team do is really important for our country and want to support it. So please take my comments as constructive. I will. I heard you say quite early on in RCR that you need to learn not to interrupt your guest. I've just listened to you with Mary Hobbs and it seems you're not there yet. There are times when it was very clear Mary was only partway through saying something, such as when she said and but didn't get to continue because she started speaking. This was quite frustrating as I really wanted to hear what Mary had to say. With good wishes and encouragement, Anna. Thank you, Anna. I will work on it. And I know, I think I get a bit nervous and I think, is this person struggling to think of, I don't know, it shouldn't be excuses, I just will not do it. And I think spaces in an interview are okay. But I feel the need to fill the space sometimes, I think. Oh, I have a thought that I feel is over-urgent. I will do better. On climate change anxiety. Oh, I did a rant on that. Remember Wellington Council had advice for citizens who are getting anxious about climate change? Oh, my goodness. Rodney, what you've read about climate anxiety is causing us to be anxious. Therefore, we have an anxiety pandemic. Step up, who, pandemic treaty. Join the dots. Merry Christmas, Paul. Good one, Paul. Dear Rodney, having just listened to your comments on climate change anxiety, this is how I will deal with it. Come winter, I'll have three of my open fires going and will burn fossilized sunlight. Some people call this stuff coal. Greg, please keep up the good work and excellent journalism. Rodney, thank you for your healthy dose of good old common sense regarding Wellington City Council's climate change BS. What a load of, pardon my language, they talk. And these people are no doubt on six-figure salaries paid for by the ratepayers. Unbelievable. So it is. So keep on calling out the nonsense they spout and challenge them to back up their assertions with real facts, not just opinions and conjecture. All power to you and everyone else at RCR for the year ahead. When more and more truths will come out, Richard. Oh, and here we go on the Dr. Cherie Trotter interview. Remember the Maori academic who was supportive of Israel? I'm writing in regards to Rodney's interview with Dr. Cherie Trotter from 19th of the December about Zionism in New Zealand. It was a fascinating interview that taught me a lot about the history of Israel. 
it gave a very balanced view about what's happening in Israel at the moment. With all the biased media that constantly attack Israel's right to defend itself, it was refreshing to get a balanced interview that took in consideration the position of Israel, which is surrounded with hostile countries that wish to destroy it. I also recommend other RCR hosts, especially Paul Brennan, to listen to this interview as it will help them to ask questions that are based on history and not on lies. I look forward to hearing more interviews like that. Thank you again, Mike. Really love your shows, top class, along with all hosts. Anyway, taking a minute to suggest a possible update on the business of the chosen people as discussed recently with one of your guests. Forget who that was right now. However, there is a book that was banned many years ago, which I believe could possibly shed some light on that issue. A book by Arthur Kostler called The Thirteenth Tribe could explain a lot, methinks, based on my ignorant comprehension when I tried to understand what he was going on about many years ago. The fact it was banned speaks to it being worthy of another look, perhaps. Maureen. Reflections on the COVID inquiry. Hi, Rodney. Your comments about the COVID inquiry were so apt, so accurate, and so well stated. Fantastic clip. Thank you for all that you and the team at RCR do. Well, thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting us, and thank you for writing. Hi, Rodney. Love your show. Thank you for all that you do. I just need to say one thing. I think that people don't understand that until the Pfizer agreement is brought into the light, it's likely the reason for reticence on saying anything about the whistleblowing data. I think that's true. I think that contract should be part of the inquiry. I really wish that everyone would stop bagging the new government and the inquiry and assuming the worst. Peters is a lawyer. He understands the need to proceed with caution where contracts involved. Going off half-cocked could seriously undermine the ability of New Zealand first to A, retain credibility in the inquiry, and B, doing so would show the other side as to where they need to start covering their tracks. Peters is not stupid. He's been in this position before, and I think he is more understanding than any of us what is needed, as well as understanding what is at stake. It is inflammatory and unhelpful to constantly pontificate about he's failing us all, how the inquiry will be a failure, and to lambast the new government for not jumping the gun. Be more helpful to say to people lobbying New Zealand first, communicate your concerns. I will be, and I'll copy you in on the email when I've finished it so you can see where I'm coming from. Just because Peters is not coming out publicly saying anything at this point does not mean there's nothing happening behind the scenes. If there's anything that we do know about New Zealand first, it is that Peters does show his does not show his hand until he has everything lined up. Patience is called for. And at present, RCR is at risk of creating more division and confusion around this emotive subject. I'd hope that you will in future take a more positive and neutral line on this and allow those who have the task to complete it before you make judgments. It may be that Mr. Peters will not speak out until he has the evidence firmly in hand to avoid a media circus and shoot down and to maximise the punch of the result. I wish you well for the new year. Blessings and love in Christ, Sarah. Well spoken, Sarah. Thank you for that. I've just listened to Rodney on the COVID inquiry and climate change replay. Bravo, Rodney. Those two issues couldn't have been summed up better in my view. You and RCR are a breath of fresh air. The freedom of thought and speech and open debate were nearly lost in New Zealand until RCR. Kind regards, Gary. Thank you, Gary. Hi, Rodney and Paul. I'm wondering if RCR would consider doing a weekly COVID inquiry of your own. Oh, what a good thought. I'd love to have an opportunity to share my story. I did all the research in 2021. I listened to Peter McCullough. Dr. Ryan Cole on turbo cancers, Dr. Robert Malone, totally shocked to see USVs, 1,200 deaths by March and 1,600 deaths by April. And no one cared. Very impacting was Dr. Bakiti. I don't even know how to pronounce his name. Dr. Bakiti, warning of blood clots, strokes, and myocarditis, myocarditis in young men. 
I remember that and thought, whoa, I wonder if he's going too far. He wasn't. I had five young adult sons, then Dr. Harvey Rish from Meow, saying we wouldn't know the short-term effects of COVID vaccine until 2023, let alone the mid-term effects and long-term for 10 years. Dr. Bacati did warn of the danger of tampering with our finely engineered immune system. He did. And we might get away with one or two COVID vaccines, but God help us if we got three or four. I fed all this into my 50-year-old sister, but she and her husband didn't want to be the shunned lepers of November 2021. He cried all the way to the clinic, but overrode her screaming gut instincts. Sick, sick, sicker immediately, and worse, and died 59 years young. Her husband remar remarries on Sunday. Oh, lol. What I was getting to is through Vicky's death, I've heard so many, many stories of all sorts. I would love an opportunity to tell my sister's story and all the others. Then there are the cancers and the turbo cancers. Theory till it hits home. My husband's cousin's wife, mid-60s, feeling a general malaise early mid-December, hospital week before Christmas, discharged back on 27th of December. Results of very aggressive lymphoma on 3rd of January and died in ICU next day 4th. No family or friend with lymphoma before COVID. And now this is the second person in their close circle. When do all the coincidences get linked together? When do they halt the COVID vax? Thank God for New Zealand First, reserving on who. Thank God for New Zealand First, hopefully a genuine COVID inquiry. Thank God for RCR bringing truth, freedom, justice, hope to our nation. Thank God for Claire, Libby and Alia and the band at Voices for Freedom. Cheers and God bless to you all, Jen. Thank you, Jen, for the words and the suggestion. It's wonderful. I think that's a very good idea. Hi, Rodney. Maybe we should also call it the New Zealand Truth and Reconciliation Inquiry. Indeed. Oh, remember the Rotorua jet, jetty controversy where this couple had the boat and have to pay for it to be all done up and then it's owned by the local iwi and they give the money to them <laughs> surely the river boat doesn't rest on the lake bed at all does it can the new jetty not be maintained or upgraded using existing piles and the seabed from the waterline up that way it wouldn't be a new structure at all as a sidebar ministers should not be able to give away large parts of the country as part of treaty settlement certainly not to ownership level without public input nothing short of a referendum would be adequate public input Lindsay. It'd be a great plot for a comedy satire sketch. Monty Python springs to mind that it's factual, fairly big as belief. Keep up the good work, David. I understand from locals rebuilding boat sheds in Auckland that it is repairing, then it's not a new one, even if the piles are replaced. It's still a repair or maintenance. If it's the same footprint, then it's a repair. Maybe check the point. For instance, they could replace all the piles except one original one. Don. Remember, we had um, Dinny Field of Van Cleef from the control group on from England. Just listen to Rodney's interview with Diane Filder Van Cleef, which was very informative. Rodney said he was worried that his children would be forced jabbed at school. Oh, boy, I really was. We were likewise worried about our grandkids, and our daughter took them out of school for the rest of the year to prevent that happening. We heard that people in vans were trolling neighborhoods, door knocking, to check that the occupants were jabbed and taking some off to the nearest jab center to get their shots. Oh, my goodness. 
And horror, we looked for a means of defending ourselves. Common law people suggested trespass signs, but if all else failed, we had weapons. Hickams were saying on TV that they would be coming for the unjabbed and we were ready. None of our immediate family got the shot. None of us now trust the government, neither. Or the medical profession, neither. Nor do we trust where the leaders of the world are trying to take us, neither. Life appears to proceed as normal, but it isn't. Agreed. There's an undercurrent of dread bubbling in the shadows. Agreed. Cheers, Jane. Hey, Rodney, just listen to Dinah Fielder Van Cleef, co-founder and coordinator on the creation of the control group to assess health outcomes of the vaccinated versus unvaccinated. Wanted to commend you, a great interview, and was great to hear you thinking exactly what has amazed me watching your own version of how the rise of Hitler could have been orchestrated. I've always jokingly said the only thing democratic about our election system is we get to vote for our next dictator every three years. That's a good way of putting it. Jacinda sure got to the top of the list as a dictator, but pleased to see Winston and David keeping Mr. Luxon honest so far. Anyway, hope you have a great Christmas and look forward to listening to your shows in the future. Keep up the good work. Regards, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. Hi, Rodney. I just finished listening to your talk with the lady from the control group and really enjoyed it. I just want to say that, like you, I'm finding it hard to forgive or forget what has been done to us all these past four years. I'm usually very quick to forgive, but I'm wondering how other people are coping with the anger and betrayal that still sits below the surface. How do we let it go? Thank you for all you do, Colette. Well, we live a good life. We live our, we live a good life, but we never forget. And never forgive even with our generous hearts. Good apology and a good inquiry would be a good place to start, though. Politics Explained, just listening to Rodney's Politics Explained at the end, he said, if anyone's interested to visit their MP and suggest they submit a parliamentary question, re Steve Kirsch's analysis of the whistleblower data on jabs to text Rodney in a draft up a question. Yes, please. Would Rodney please send in a draft question? And I'll ask my MP about it, also the New Zealand first candidate for our area who got in, Susan. I have done so. I have sent that. Good afternoon, Rodney. The whole treaty in 2023 has just become an excuse to extort money totally unfairly upon the non-Maori taxpaying, law-abiding citizens of New Zealand and a huge non-taxpaying iwis. This is totally grossly unfair and unacceptable. The treaty needs to be legally dissolved as soon as possible. I don't think the treaty has any legal force other than what legislation is put on it. Treaty just is a treaty. It's got no legal significance other than what Parliament has said it has. And it is completely racist against all citizens that are not married. I do hope that there is a push for this as soon as possible, as it's totally unfairly unacceptable. The way this is getting used on all non-marries are purely money bullying grab for non-taxpaying corporate iwi. To be fair, uh, listening to Ewan McQueen and Michael Bassett, it's not the treaty that's the problem. It's the interpretation. There's now a second treaty. Hi, Rodney. Thank you for acknowledging the real reason for the season, Jesus Christ, our Saviour, who came into the world. God bless you and your family, Bill. And you, Bill. God bless you. Hi, Rodney. When I was first able to vote, I voted for the Libertaria in New Zealand in 2011. In 2014, I voted for ACT, and after that, I became disillusioned with the housing crisis and the jobs I had. That's when I stopped voting. I'm now I'm 33 years old, and it's been 10 years since my last vote. Even though I don't vote, I will continue to complain about these worthless people in Parliament. Like you, I believed I could change things, and I gave up because there's no genuine opposition, and there aren't any good ideas being discussed in Parliament anyway. 
The political system is corrupt and full of people who are there to draw attention to themselves and make money. I feel like I'm living in a meme world, which is inspired by the anarcho-capitalist anarcho-capitalist meme, where McDonald's is a global empire that annexes territory and has a mercenary army, except in my case, the bandits are big landlords who own 40 or 50 properties and face no competition. They feel they aren't making enough money while they ignore the homelessness and poverty that can be seen on any busy Christchurch street. The worst part is seeing the ACT Party today standing against new housing developments. It's nothing like a market-oriented capitalist party and more like a cartel that just defends rich lobby groups that they are in contact with. The opposite of what it was supposed to be. I don't think the original ACT Party wanted to give favours to a select group of special interests. I believe they wanted to deregulate some things, but not because of who they were friends with. I'm disgusted by some of the ideas in Parliament today, especially the support for American ships in the Red Sea and the promotion of a new NATO army in the Pacific. National and Labour are both the same, as far as I can tell, in the foreseeable future they'll have a war with China, and we'll all be putting Taiwanese flags on our social media profile pictures with the expression, I stand with Taiwan. It's also tiring when I've seen it before. How can anyone take politics serious when it's so predictable and rancid? I think the Jehovah's Witnesses are right about politics. Jeff. Interesting. I got sent a lovely book by Jehovah Witness, which I'm reading. Please pray and God would raise up watchmen and gatekeepers to protect and build up the kingdom of God here on earth. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It'd be excellent if our new conservative coalition government started the year by reinstating the original God and Jesus honouring prayer and acknowledging our king, as they've all sworn allegiance to him. Trevor Mallard, the then speaker, had no right to independently change a prayer and to make it secular. He has done an evil thing to New Zealand in the sight of God. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. Psalm 33, 12. Very beautiful. Thank you for that. Thank you for a wonderful mailbag. Please send your notes and um, emails. I'm too scared to give you the text and the email address. You know why? I think I'll mess it up because I don't have it in front of me. I used to have it off by heart. And I think I know it, but I'm sure I'll start wrong. Next week, I'll give you the text and the email address. But I do love your notes. I do love your missus. I do love hearing from you. Because we are more than a community. We are a very close-knit and tight tribe. We need each other. It's Real Talk. Rodney Hyde, Rally Check Radio. Thank you for listening. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, my goodness. It's so wonderful to be back with you. I have missed you. I've missed RCR. I've missed the guests. I've missed your feedback. And I'm so happy to be back in my happy place with you. What a wonderful set of guests we've had today with Dr. Michael Bassett and Mr. Ewan McQueen, and how different it is to have a erudite or understanding of the issues of the treaty 
and Waitangi Day being discussed rather than the divisiveness and the name-calling and the creation of dissent where there need be none. And I very much appreciated Ewan McQueen in that his book, of course, is marvellous, but his discussion of those missionaries coming to New Zealand and the amazing job they did. I used to think of courage as someone like Captain Cook. But to be a missionary with your family, that is something. And actually, when you think about it, that's what built New Zealand. And his observation from this Waitangi day that we can look to that young lady's testimony and make a start because what moved Tamaiti moved would move each of us and again bring us that shared feeling and shared inspiration and then of course dr michael bassett an mp with norm kirk as prime minister and right back to when a decision was made to take our very harmonious race relations and make them better and then fast forward over what is it 50 years to where we are now. Oh, my goodness. It is amazing. But together, discussion, debate, respect, respecting each other, we can get back there and we can make this country great again. And so thank you so much for being with us on our first show of the year. It's a great pleasure and a privilege to be your host. And I look forward to being back next week. Take care. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. 